Hello. This episode of Directors Club is brought to you by FreshBooks. And let me tell you, I found out about this software, and if you're a business owner looking for a way to be the best bookkeeper you can be, you've got to check out FreshBooks. It's a cloud-based program that focuses on creating invoices. You can organize your client list, manage team members, collect payments, sync reports. It's so cool. And you can send professional-looking invoices. If you look at the reviews everywhere, you'll see nothing but raves, which is why I'm endorsing this cloud-based program wholeheartedly, because it's helping small businesses get more organized. They have apps for iPhone, iPad, Android. Yes! Easily send invoices. Track time. Manage expenses. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day free trial to give you the opportunity to try out their service. Just go to www.gofreshbooks.com slash directors club, and I'll include a link in the show notes as well. GoFreshBooks.com slash Directors Club to support the show and to try out this amazing service. Welcome to another episode of the Director's Club. Well, that's actually my favorite piece by Beethoven, and I can't tell you how much I was moved to see River Phoenix play that in um, Running on Empty, which is a film I cannot say enough good things about, which you're going to hear momentarily. It, It really is a masterpiece. Yes, you guessed it. I'm starting this episode with another preamble here. First up, uh, I want to remind you to visit nowplayingnetwork.net for a slew of great shows, including Vinyl Emergency with the one and only Jim Hankey. Interviewing, oh man, a whole batch of great people about vinyl and their love of music. It's a show that I couldn't be happier to catch every week since it's only getting better. And the same goes for Eric Childress's Movie Madness, which episode four is fantastic. Features um, Brian Tallarico, who is on this episode that you're about to hear. And uh, they did a great uh, sort of analysis of the Academy Awards, which are coming up this evening, or depending on when you listen to it, when, when you listen to this. But um, yeah, Eric's been, you know, doing this for years, talking statistics, box office analysis, new releases, and doing interviews with various film critics as well. Movie Madness, you should check it out over at NowPlayingNetwork.net. So alongside Directors Club and Pop Culture Club, um, yeah, please check out those two shows and the soon-to-be-launched Supporting Characters, I believe, hosted by Bill Ackerman, which I couldn't be more excited about as well. That's going to be great, I have no doubt. So I also encourage you to leave a review for Directors Club or any of the network shows over on iTunes. Um, Spread the word via social media. That would be great of you to do. And if you're feeling generous, there is a donation link over at the Now Playing Network website. You can pay whatever you like. Or um, not pay, but, you know, just throw a couple bones, whatever you like. Uh, it could be 50 cents. doesn't matter. <laughs> you uh, And if you send me an email, obviously, I, well, I mean, I'll probably get a, a receipt notifying me of your donation. I will probably... Uh, send you a very nice reply thanking you, but also offering you something in return. It could be a DVD, it could be uh, you know a movie soundtrack, it could be um, a um, a record of mine. 
yeah, that's what I was trying to get to, a record of mine, which, you know, you may or may not like, but, you know, it's I'm just trying to offer something in return. Obviously, you got oodles and oodles of content, and I know Patrick hates that word, and now I regret using that word, but I refuse to edit myself out, which um, you're probably all regretting that fact right as I speak and continue to speak. Also, I need to thank Colin Suter for taking some time off for... Uh, he, he took some time off from reviewing movies on WGN and I had, I had some fun these past two months filling in and talking new releases with Nick DiGilio and Eric Childress. It reminded me of why I'm so grateful for doing director's club for the listeners, for the support, for the simple fact that I much prefer going back and checking out the work of the legends of the past, um, way more. Way, way, way more than visiting the multiplexes on a Friday night and having to see The Boy and The Forest and How to Be Single. Um, you know, I, I can't tell you how excited I am to watch more Lumet films and more Hitchcock films. Um, William Wyler. I mean, there's so many directors. Howard Hawks, John Ford, Sam Peck. I mean, I, the list is going to go on and on and on forever. I mean, obviously my goal is to keep going as long as I can. Who knows? Maybe one day the family thing will happen. Who knows? Maybe a salary job will come my way. There will be less time. I don't know. I couldn't tell you. But I see myself doing this for as long as humanly possible, and it makes me more and more excited to go back and experience, you know, what these amazing artists have done over time, as opposed to... (laughs) You know, going to the movies every Friday night and seeing what's new. It's pretty depressing. At least in January and February. It changes, obviously, as the years as the year progresses. But I need to say thank you to WGN and Nick DiGilio for allowing me to fill in. And mad props to you for listening to this episode or any um, from the archives. It means the world to me. This has been a dream in the making, and I'm glad that you get something out of it. Uh, I, it's, I, I, I continue to be humbled by it. This next episode is a real treat because two of the smartest ver, ver, ver two of the smartest voices I've ever heard. <laughs> and I mean that, no hyperbole. Both Al and Brian are incredibly intelligent. And to have them both in the same room, what it, I just I was beside myself most of the time we were we were engaged in discussion about the legendary Sidney Lumet. Yes, a director whom I wish I could have watched way more of, So, but don't fret. In the future, there will be a sequel episode. I will watch The Offense, The Pawnbreaker, uh, The Pawnbreaker? The Pawnbroker, The Hill, uh, Long Day's Journey Into Night, which I might have seen a long time ago, but I don't have a fresh memory of. But there's so many exclusions this time around for this director that it's inevitable. A sequel episode will come probably next year, And also, I tried to keep the running time a bit tighter since I expect the next episode on Hitchcock to probably go on much longer. Who knows? You just never know when it comes to this show. There's a line in in the movie that inspired me to do this in the first place, if you want to go way back to 1990. Uh, In Pump Up the Volume, a listener of um, Christian Slater's, you know, he plays Hard Harry, a, a listener of the show at one point goes... Sometimes he's on for five minutes, sometimes he's on for five hours. That's hard hairy for ya. Well, everybody, talk hard, enjoy episode 103 with myself, Brian, and Al, 
as we discuss the classics from one Sydney Lumet. Welcome to a very special edition of the Directors Club Podcast. I am Jim Laskowski. This is episode 103, and what makes it special is that I am employing the help of not just one, but two guests to talk about a monumental filmmaker. He has such an expansive career that, much like the next director we'll be covering here, um, inevitably there's going to have to be a sequel episode. So to help out with round one of Sidney Lumet, I have called upon a recent guest who was kind enough to offer us his humble abode once again. And uh, he was such a huge hit for the Kubrick episode. Expect to hear him again a couple more times this year. Welcome back, Al! Um, uh, hey, uh, thanks, Jim. I'm really happy to be here. And uh, uh, Lumet's just such a fascinating character for discussion. Absolutely. And secondly... We have the managing, managing editor for RogerEber.com, one of my favorite critics and a former guest from the show whom you might remember from, Miyazaki, Alfonso Caron, Park Chan-wook. He is none other than Brian Tallarico. Welcome back, Brian. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, as listeners know by now, we just sort of launch right into the work. There's no setup anymore, huh? There's no, no like, hey, I saw a movie and it sucked. <laughs> no, well, now that Patrick's gone. No more, no more, I hate that. I hate that and I hate that too. Well, that's not bad mouth him. <laughs> oh, I love him. I no, love him. I love he's, him. He's, he's one of the best out yeah, there. I love him. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, I mean, we launch right into things. Uh, we don't do the what we watch segment. We don't okay. do all that. So, because we have a lot to talk about. <laughs> the where do we start? just me i was a psychology major so that's where i start <laughs> i always start with this question okay what was your first experience watching a sydney lumet film we'll start with brian this time 12 angry men early i remember my parents introduced me to that era of filmmaking we watched a lot of hitchcock and old musicals and i think i saw 12 angry men when i was a kid a very very young kid so uh i don't in fact, I think I saw it so early I didn't associate it with the filmmaker at that point. We all have a point in our movie-watching career where we realize a movie was made by somebody. Yeah. Like Someone asked me that question when my first one of those was, and that's an interesting question to ask. Like When you realized hmm. this movie didn't just come into existence, someone directed it. For me, I think that's Rear Window. 
or I know it was Hitchcock because my parents introduced me to Hitchcock as here's a person to, that you should know about making multiple films. And I'm pretty sure it was Rear Window. But I saw 12 Angry Men or even earlier than that. So I don't think I associated it directly with Lumet. I saw Dog Day not once I knew about auteurs and had a theory on filmmakers. And, mm-hmm. and then that opened the door to all the other Lumet films. Yeah, that's pretty close to how I started out as well. Al, how about you? What was your first Lumet? Film? My first Lumet was The Wiz. Yeah. Oh, wow. That actually might be all of ours, to be honest, when we're, oh, yeah. we're kids. And, yeah. And, um, uh, in fact, even even back then, I, I heard his name because when they had right. reviews about it, it was Sidney Lumet does the whiz. Right. Sydney Lumet. And I had, I, I, it was a, a while before I realized why there was such a discrepancy. Yeah. Uh, the, ne- and the, the next film of his that I saw was Network, which was the, like, the, I had heard it was a great satire, but that, uh, nothing prepared me for how effective that was. And then I later I picked in on his on his uh, crime on his crime series of, uh, of films, and about the same time um, I was taught Twelve Angry Men as a play, and then right. to get and ah, but, I may have been too. That sounds the, really familiar. The 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 real the real eye opener for me for Lumet was reading his book on oh, direction. Making I really need to read making, that, especially after just binging on a lot of his work. It made me very curious to see how you know he just. His personal experiences, personal accounts would be really fascinating to read. I think I have a copy you can have if you uh, want. Yeah. It, it's mm. one of those books that is so seminal in terms of yeah. film books that I've had a relative give it to me every couple of years for Christmas. <laughs> I think I have a couple if you need one. I can find it, one. Sure. It, is, it is like, yeah, to me, it's the book, the book about for people, even if you're not like um, like a, a film student or a film scholar, it's the book to give somebody because it gives such a wonderful matter-of-fact example of what makes good direction, what's the point of, 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 of directing a scene in a certain way it's up there with like adventures in the screen trade and um uh, and uh like um and when when the shooting stops to me oh wow yeah i think i saw 12 angry men in high school it seems like one of those movies that i don't remember specifically what class we saw it in but i think you know my my first experiences of watching movies in high school was to was to kill a mockingbird and 12 angry men and i just remember being so compelled by by 12 angry men and just being so honed in on those on those actors, especially since, and we're going to talk about Twelve Angry Men first here, anyway. So it's a good transition of sorts. But the the, the way those faces of the actors are framed mm-hmm. is in close up so many times. I remember being so highly aware of that even way back then. Just like, oh my god, um, I think it's uh, Joseph Sweeney. Is, is that, that that's the character's name? Um, Maybe. Yeah, he his face is all like. Your first introduction to him, because he's the first guy besides Henry Fonda who also right. decides he's uh, you know not guilty and everything, and it's just like let's look right at his face as he's speaking, the <laughs> right well, it, it, in perfect uh, frame. Lumet's such a master framer, and that one's a perfect example of how he would use framing to increase claustrophobia yeah. or, or to play power roles, lower angles or higher angles, depending on who's talking and what we're supposed right. to think of them at the time. Twelve Angry Men is a perfect example of that, and something he would do throughout his career. Um, I'm interested in how that movie reflects on his entire career and how it feeds into the rest of his career. I'll just say this now. There was a great special feature on the recent Inside Lewin Davis criterion um, called The First Hundred Feet and The Last Hundred Feet. And they, and they, and they interviewed, Guillermo del Toro interviewed the Cones. Right. And the question okay. was this, how do Blood Simple and Lewin Davis tie up your entire career? How do they reflect everything? So before we get before we wrap this up, I want to figure out how Twelve Angry Men and Before the Devil Knows You're Dead 
tie up Lumet's entire career. Ooh. We can move on. (laughs) Homework. That's fascinating. Yeah. Well, I think the, the, the thing I noticed first and foremost is that I don't know if he's necessarily like an... I think it's kind of clear that he's not an auteur of sorts. Like, does he have a distinctive style that you can specifically, when you're putting on a Lumet film, this is a Sidney Lumet film? Other than the, you know, cor- the themes, the, you know, the corruption, morality, uh, the things that he focuses on on a philosophical level. Distinctive style is a hard phrase to quantify. He has certain skill sets that I think make his films stand out. In other words, use of setting, use of city, the city of New York, the way he frames certain characters, the depth he allows of certain moments, especially in the seventies and eighties that other directors would not. I think you, I think if you showed a, I'm not sure I agree that he's not an auteur because I think if you showed people the seventies and eighties films, especially and said, did the same person make all these films? Did the same person make, Dog Day, Serpico, Prince of the City, Verdict, and Q&A, someone would go, well, obviously. Like, mm. like in other words, the thumbprints are there. The fingerprints are there. Yeah. They, they have the same style, the same tone. Uh, the word auteur often gets thrown around as to what it means and whether or not he's won. But they, he definitely has fingerprints on his films. Some people have, have claimed that he does not and that it's, he's more of a writer's or actor's director. He allows the actors to do things more than – I mean, he's not – Scorsese or Cohn in terms of visual flash and visual right. style. But like I said, you, you look at those films and you can tell they were made by the same person. Yeah, the visual flourishes didn't stand out, but that didn't that's that's not to take anything away right. from his talent. Exactly. Hmm. Al, what do you think? Um there is, it, it's a really interesting question on the on how what you should uh, so what you should ascribe an outer theory. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. is like I mean some like can do you go like the Wes Anderson route of like like it's there's a precise technique that like uh, that is consistent throughout all your subjects or is it just or is it, like thematic like um uh, like just some some concern that keeps manifesting itself you know there is from the films I was watching from uh, Lumet like one thing that kept jumping out at me is that there is a kind of a sense that especially when you're he's dealing with like poli- the police office and, and, and especially in the jury room in 12 Angry Men, there's a sense of like just a kind of – there's a Spartan level of squalor to the environments. You know, <laughs> yeah. there's like – there's so much in like um, – so much of, of those scenes are just like – it's just this open space and there's just like a rickety, a rickety table and some, and some uh, like really, really spare chairs that are, that are around, you know. Like I think one of the – one of the real and nice contrasts of 12 Angry Men is how like all these weighty matters are being held in such a shoddy environment. Well, he uses setting masterfully. I mean, every, the way the city feels alive in dog day, every, every room of Prince of the city has a different purpose. In other words, when you get to the prosecutors and there's books on the shelf and fancy furniture, or you get into the police station and it's all rickety and squ- like mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. settings say things about the characters, the verdict, his office with yeah. stuff everywhere. Yeah. And it, he uses setting to help you understand reflects the character, reflects the character reflects the plot reflects the narrative he uses setting as well as anyone as far as I'm concerned I think that's one of his greatest strengths there is a misconception of auteur theory that it means only one person made the movie or that only people like Wes Anderson or the Coens can be auteurs that's not necessarily true auteur theory has become this kind of like weird amorphous thing that no one really completely I think understands anymore especially on Twitter Uh, (laughs) but but I think we should move on as to whether or not Lumet was an auteur he was a very talented filmmaker and I think it's interesting to raise the idea that he has these skill sets that define a Lumet film, uh, to me. Yeah, no, I mean, one, one consistent thing I noticed, um, he, his movies just start. 
Like yeah. they start practice sometimes almost like in mid scene, right. or you know, there's just an immediacy to the way he begins a movie. You know, I think of you know Q and A too is where you know it's just yeah, you're thrown right into it, mm-hmm. right in the moment, um, and you know to some extent, uh, you know. Network, just the way it's like, okay, we're going to show you all these TVs right here, right now. And this is, there's just a sense of intensity and immediacy to all of his films that you're pretty much in right at the get go. It's the economy of filmmaking yeah. that he has. I agree with that. Yeah. He's also fascinated with work process. He's fascinated with watching cops do what they do, lawyers do what mm-hmm. they do, uh, juries, how they work. Uh, in almost every film, there's a, almost a procedural. Sensibility. Yeah, we, I, I, I was mentioning other films recently that I feel like have been inspired by Lumet, and it didn't dawn on me until watching the length and precision of Prince of the City. How much spotlight has a sort of procedural? Here's how jobs oh, get done. Right. Here's how we're going to do what we're going to do. All the meetings, all the planning. I mean, uh, McCarthy has said that Pacula is his biggest influence. All the President's Men, of mm-hmm. course, and that makes sense. But there's a procedural element to Lumet's films. The awareness of how much people are defined by what they do. I'm a cop, and so this is who I am. I'm a lawyer, like in the verdict. I mean, there's so much process in verdict. I mean, we see the voir dire. We see so much of what a case goes through yeah. in verdict. It's really about that to a certain degree. And I think that's another interesting stamp on at least all the films I watched recently, that he's a man who's fascinated with people doing their jobs and how that defines us. Right, exactly. I think that I think that's also the the mammoth mentality. Oh, for sure. Because <laughs> he, he, you know, especially I, I, I couldn't watching a lot of the cop procedurals and the uh, morality tales and just how, how everybody gets corrupted. I couldn't help but think of my favorite mammoth movie, Homicide, throughout a lot of these and how, yeah, clearly, that yeah. Q and A has yeah. a lot. Q and A is on a screen here. I just pointed at it. it has a lot in common with Homicide. Yeah, absolutely. Opinion. Wow. Yeah, it's it's just, that's is that wow because you love homicide. <laughs> homicide is uh, homicide as I think Ma- uh, Mamet's best wor- best work as a di- as a director. Yeah. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, um, I mean, and and it brings out a lot of his concerns that are and while keeping his con game stuff to him to a minimum. Well, if you look at Mamet's work as a director, it's clearly influenced by the work he did with Lumet as a writer. I mean, mm-hmm. oh, all, yeah. all of Mamet's stuff has a Lumet feel and a sensibility to it. Was it? Right. But was there one before the verdict? Uh, Were they I'm not sure. No, I don't think so. I don't I think, think so. The verdict was their first collaboration, but that was a big one. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Although I think there was a little compromise with the ending. I think originally uh, yeah, I know. Mamet, didn't M- Mamet the... did not want a verdict. Yeah. We all know that. Yeah. Wanted to keep it oh, ambiguous. Really? Mamet yeah. wanted no verdict, and even Lumet was like, "Oh, we can't do that." <laughs> <laughs> so I respect that a little bit uh, on both sides. Yeah. I respect Mamet for trying, and Lumet for saying, "No, can't do that." So how about that ensemble of Twelve Angry Men? Good oh, Lord. Geez, yeah. Classic for a reason. Yeah, and if we were going to go the first 100 feet, last 100 feet route, that was something that would define Lumet's work as well, the actors he worked with and what he brought out of them. I mean, how many actors gave their best or arguably their best performance in a Lumet film? I mean, Pacino's work in Dog Day is my favorite of his career. Mm -hmm. Treat Williams in Prince of the City never came close to that again. And and I don't mean that as a knock on Treat Williams, but that performance in Prince of the City is remarkable. Yeah, it's De Niro level good. It is so good. Watching it again recently, that's what blew me away. It is so nuanced and so subtle. Newman is amazing in The Verdict. Yeah. I mean, we we can go through the whole list and 12 Angry Men, like you said. Henry Fonda considered it one of the best performances. What got me was like knowing Jack Klugman from the odd couple yeah. and then 
going to be one of the jurors from 12 Angry Men, yeah. the magnificent uh, job that he did. Yeah, he's great. And oh, Jack he, Warden's first appearance. Oh, I was going to say, he would get performances out of actors who you didn't think had it in him, like Jack Warden. Warden yeah. in The Verdict is great. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and it's like, I forget that. I forget how good he was. I forget how good James Mason was, too, watching it again. But James Mason was always good. Uh, but actors like that, like Jack Warden who you, and Klugman, you think, well, maybe they wouldn't be right for this. He'd somehow find a way. To make mm-hmm. it work, he was he was an actor's director in that sense, in that he, like I said, how many great actors had their best performance in a Lumet film? It's a gigantic list. Yeah, <laughs> well, I think like I, I've always liked films that are either based on plays or they feel like they're a play, and it's dialogue heavy. It's a lot of confrontation, mm-hmm. and here the the camera moves are so economic, and they serve a purpose. Like you mentioned, low angles at certain instances to make right. Henry Fonda sort of feel larger than life right. when he's towering over everybody. Um, yeah, I mean, he just he, he, he knows how to um, accentuate emotion at the right times using the camera. Without drawing attention to it. Yeah. You have to really look for it and think about it. Okay, what's he doing with the framing here and the visual composition here and what does it say about this character? There's a moment in the verdict when, it, when Newman's convinced he's going to lose and he shoots it basically from the floor. And so the ceiling and the big windows behind him and all the junk in his office looks like it's about to fall down on him. Right. And it, But it's the kind of choice that you wouldn't... That, if, unless you're thinking about it, because you're about to do a podcast about it, you may not notice. It's just mm-hmm. going to play into the way you feel about the narrative and the character at that time. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's good to be aware of those things yeah. in the in the moment, too. I mean, I, 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 had, I hadn't realized just, like, how, you know, effective close-ups were in certain instances with 12 Angry Men until re-watching it. And, you know, seeing it as a kid, it's like, oh, I'm just, I just see a, you know, a close-up of an actor. But here I, I realize he's trying to make a point when he's doing those specific camera mm-hmm. Um, angles and whatnot. I mean, it's also just on the uh, master class on like the most basic things you that you can do on a filmmaker. You have a, such a limited set, and yeah. you have to put in like drama, suspense, mm-hmm. ten, uh, like tension, revelation, and at the mo- in, in an even more basic level. You have twelve distinct people, and you have in so many shots. You have to keep these uh, like five or six people in yeah. the frame, like well, where whereas not making it look like say a, a Dutch master's painting, <laughs> where it's obviously staged, but make it just a natural configuration. Right, and it's theatrical without ever feeling like a filmed play. I like mm-hmm. films that could have been plays, but don't look like plays. That don't forget sure. their film. Right. And that's my theater background as well. That I want to see how they break out of the theatricality of it. And Twelve Angry Men occasionally but not often feels like a play I mean it doesn't feel like yeah a play. that's I had a little bit of a disconnect with Mamet's uh, Oleana oh yeah because of that yeah it looks like a play oh yeah. there you see it all the time yeah. I mean especially small character two or three people in a room type pieces where you can say mm-hmm. This should have been a play, or like Death and the Maiden, yeah, has, right, has yeah, that issue, yeah. Um, which is an amazing play and a mediocre film, partially because of that, because mm-hmm. you can't find the cinematic nature of it; it's too strapped into its origins. Sure. So, but Twelve Angry Men never feels like that. I mean, it doesn't. I mean, it could have, and it, it does a little bit. There are moments where you go, "Okay, I could watch this on a stage, and it would maybe be more effective." But it, it's also you talk about economy or somebody said that word it's 96 minutes it's yeah. like that it, it, it flies by it's so purposeful in its narrative and its character and its structure mm-hmm. which arguably he would lose at certain points later in his career yeah yeah i mean that's something i i don't necessarily think is you know um a negative is like 
a lot of his films really got long. I think you can watch 12 Angry Men twice while you're watching Prince of the City. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I never felt like, you know, at watching any of his movies again, it's like, oh, pacing is an issue, really. I mean, maybe uh, you could have trimmed um, 10 or 15 minutes out of Q&A, maybe yep. make it tighter. I um, think Serpico could be tighter. Yeah, maybe Serpico, yeah, a little yeah. bit. Sure. Uh, Prince of the City is his longest, and I don't think, I think that's perfectly fine yeah the way it is so you're right it's not necessarily like as so many people have said we've all seen long short movies and short long movies right it doesn't really matter the actual running time (laughs) yeah no i mean you know that like the revelation in 12 angry men with the knife and how it's just a gradual pushing of the camera as henry fonda reveals the knife those 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 little touches like that really make that film sort of stand out as something other than just a filmed play. Right. And every sing you you, you start to remember every single uh, juror. They're right. all distinctive, and right. you all remember each one and where they stand. And I think it, I think it's a special film, and it, it really holds up upon rewatches over the years. It's influential as all get out in terms of yeah what not just what people would see in film in terms of jury and process, but what we think of. When we think of jury and process, don't That's tell me you haven't. But exactly, when you get a call for jury, twelve angry men crosses your mind. Yep. <laughs> you get a jury summons, <laughs> it crosses your mind, maybe even just for a second. But so it's been wildly influential. Yeah, absolutely. So where do we go from here? Everything else is seventies and eighties, right? Except yeah, for, except I for know. Devil that we want to talk about this I time. Know. Next time you're going to have to do like. Fugitive Kind and his Long Day's Journey and some of the other stuff in between. Pawnbroker. Pawnbroker. In between 12 Angry Men and Dog Day, I guess, is where we're going next. The list you gave me, I think um, that was next chronological. If yeah, we want to go I mean, chronological. Serpico and Dog Day, Serpico yeah. Serpico and Dog Day. Oh, yeah. Serpico 73. Yeah. Serpico 73. So that's the next one on the list you sent me. Correct. So you want to go there? Yeah, why not? Because... Um, I, I think you might have uh, mentioned in your letterbox review about watching this after Prince of City Prince of the City maybe had yeah. you know, kind of a you know, a negative effect on rewatching Serpico. And I kind of agree, but I still found it to be incredibly effective. I still found, you know, the the, the bookends and sort of just, you know, Pacino's performance and completely engaging throughout. Um but you know, what can you say about Certain moments with throughout the film, and particularly like hey Paco, I, Paco, <laughs> yeah, um, or James Tolkien appearing in the yeah. bathroom. Stall. Oh yeah, that scene. Yeah, Serpico to me is the weakest of the ones I rewatched recently, um, and I think I saw it as a kid and was like, oh Pacino, oh my god, because yeah. it's that great Pacino run where mm-hmm. he was nominated four years in a row. Godfather that, Godfather two, Dog Day, four Best Actor nominations in a row, Jeez. which is just. Looted. He won for freaking Sentinel Woman. He won for Woman many years later. Uh, he's very powerful in it, I, although I, I see some of the strings in his performance, at least this recent time, hmm. especially as it gets more heated and more passionate near the end. I think if he had done it after Dog Day, when he had developed a little more, it might have been stronger. I think he was a little too young for it. Okay. Uh, I think an okay. older actor would have brought a little more gravity to the tension of the situation. I think he wasn't quite ready for it yet because he was really young. He was playing older mm-hmm. than he is and, uh, than he was at the time. Hence the beard. Hence the beard. <laughs> Hence the uh, oh, huh. So it's kind of like he was on the a bit of the Jennifer Lawrence uh, or Russell <laughs> career track. Sure. Well, <laughs> yeah. I, I, she, she's had like three in a row too, hasn't she? Yeah. Uh, now that I think yeah. about it, yeah. maybe four. Uh, yeah, I like Serpico, but like I said, I think there's an interesting 
we the, he, Jim sends out a list, and so I rewatched a bunch of the things on the list. And in the span of a week, I watched Prince of the City, Serpico, and Q and A, and they're all commentaries on police corruption. Um, yeah set at different, very different time periods and different eras, and, and I think that makes them interesting, and I even think their comments on each other to a certain extent. Hmm. Lumet has said he made Prince of the City as a sort of a comment on Serpico about corruption and how uh, a more complex look at police corruption. And then you look at Q&A, which is another commentary on police corruption that focuses on racism, which is... Kind of casually treated in Prince of the City, kind of casually treated in Prince <laughs> yeah. of the City and Serpico, and Prince of the City and Q and A are not that far apart time wise. It's really fascinating to watch Prince of the City and see how easily they throw around the N word and, and casual racism, and then nine years later, maybe even eight years later, he makes a film that's essentially about how cops treat racism. Yeah. And, or, or, and is to me, it's on. It's in the forefront for sure. It's in the forefront, yeah. whereas it's just like casual <laughs> background in Prince. Um, it, it's so funny that you got to bring that up to me because, like, it seems like you know almost a phantom kind of way. It's like Lumet maybe following like a John, the John Ford career track. Well, right. the, the thing that remind the thing that uh, um, I get the one of the biggest impressions out of Twelve Angry Men is like the. Um, is like many scenes in, in John Ford's stagecoach. Yeah, yeah. It was just because, it, especially there's like a dinner party sequence where every character of all of, of all the denizens of the stagecoach are right. well represented, and their and their relations between them are just shown through their distance, where they sit, how they how they yeah. you know how they how they act, and like. And I see such a great equivalence on that in Twelve Angry Men. With career-wise, I think Ford had a similar economy. A, a lot of the things we've I, used to describe Lumet could be used to describe Ford. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I do oh, think yeah. there's and, a comparison and, and, there. And, and, and the Q, and with the Q and A's approach of racism, which he trafficked early. I in his wish career, it was as good. A, <laughs> such a great echo to like the, the searcher. I wish. And, I I, and, I think and that's Ford's in, later films. I think that's very intentional. I think he makes a fatal error in casting his daughter in the key role mm. uh, but i don't know if we're going to talk more about q a later but but so let's get back we to serpico around like, yeah i know we I, I like to sort of stick chronologically but at the same time when you're talking about thematically tying together serpico q a and prince of the city it's it's fine to sort of jump it's around interesting to me that i think prince of the city and other than a few cultural issues and verdict could come out largely untouched whereas i look at serpico and it looks really dated to me and it's like eight years earlier. Yeah. So I th- and that could be an era, a product of the time. Dog Day, two years later, could come out largely untouched, mm-hmm. but that could just be because I think that's his masterpiece. Where Serpico to me looks like this is an interesting product of the time. That's part of Pacino's stretch, stretch run. There, I see it more as an artifact, or I don't know, that's too strong a word. But you know what I'm getting at—a piece of movie history than something that still really entertains or engages me. Whereas the other films do. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's could- got a woman problem too. <laughs> I mean, seriously, the women in Serpico start to kind of blend together, and you don't yeah. even know who they are. Like yeah, at a certain a point, problem. I had to bring up IMDb to make sure a character hadn't changed because, like, they're so non-character mm-hmm. that I mean, he's had a he's got a woman problem in most of his films, and maybe we'll get to that. But Serpico, to me, is one of the places it's the strongest because there is no female character that really matters in that film, right? Uh, and again, that Lindsay could be a, Krause up from House of Games, yeah, is that it? yes, kind of blends in the yes. background, and she's not a very good actor. <laughs> Right. <laughs> um, yeah, she's she's probably the reason why House of Games isn't my favorite oh, mammoth film. Oh, I love House of Games. Well, I, no, I love House of Games. It's not my number two. Okay, but you know. Anyway, Serpico's Serp, my my expert years of experience critical opinion on Serpico is it's okay. <laughs> no, I like it. I, what, I enjoyed it. To what extent you guys think it was a trial run? 
or some sort of a, a sense of like touching on the themes that he would explore late, uh, to much greater detail in in uh, Prince of the City. Well, maybe to some degree, I'm, I'm sort of <laughs> comparing a little bit to Serpico being the homicide TV show, and then Prince of the City, the City being the Wire. In the way it's like Serpico, maybe I wouldn't say it's a trial run of its blueprints for, but it, I mean, obviously, when you have more time to. To, you know, with Prince of the City, you have a lot. You have three hours practically to spend time commenting on corruption in, in the right. police system, and you know how sort of a departmental purge is inevitable when you're dealing with all this corruption and moral decay. Um, and a more gray protagonist. I think yeah, when he says uh, he wanted more of a gray. when he wanted to make Prince to correct Serpico, I think that's what he means. Yeah, I, I think it's the idea that this almost looks too easy in Serpico. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know mm-hmm. there's the ending and all and the shooting and all, but it's like. Treat Williams' character in Prince of the City is much more morally complex, yeah. and I think that's what he means. Yeah, he's you can you can sense his conflict yeah. throughout the entire film. Whereas Serpico, it's pretty much you know what side he's on the entire he time. He made like AFI's heroes list, so I mean, <laughs> yeah. And then there's that thin aspect of it to a mm-hmm. certain extent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Did to that extent did like did did you guys feel that like that there was um that Henry Fonda's character to 12 Angry Men was a little one-sided? Or um. would you find some nuance in... Now, now it, it was obviously based on the play and so on, but like he's, he's met, I, I've always found the play, that, that particular juror, to be some idealized notion of... But it's know. very purposefully idealized. It's one mm-hmm. man against the mob type thing. So I sure. think... Mm-hmm. And you're right, maybe Serpico is, <laughs> is a byproduct of that, if you want to tie <laughs> the two together. The one good man in the room. I mean, there's an argument to be made that those... Two yeah. things have that in common. Uh, but in 12 Angry Men, it's, I don't have an issue with it because it is so functional. Mm-hmm. It is so, it's not taking on police corruption. It's taking on one man versus a bunch of ignorant people who aren't paying attention in mm-hmm. one room, in one moment, in one situation. I mean, you can extrapolate it out to be about other things than that. But Serpico is a much more multi-setting, multi-character, clearly trying to say more than I think it does type mm-hmm. piece. A more cynical person might have liked it if 12 Angry Men ended with Henry Fonda going up to the defendant's lawyer and going, oh, we got this now. We got it in the bag, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe that would have been the more 70s I was going to say, that's, that's exactly what I was going to say. That's the difference between the 50s and the 70s or the 80s. If Mammoth had written it, yeah. he would have gotten that. Oh, yeah, mm. for sure, for sure. No, I mean, Serpico is serviceable, and it's yes. really solid entertainment, and I really ah. enjoyed watching it, and it's great to see Al Pacino, um, you know, at his pinnacle during that whole period. Yeah. Um, and obviously, character actors show up throughout. I mean, we're you know we're going to talk about Dog Day Afternoon next, and like I just remember like oh Lance Hendrickson is showing yeah. up quite a bit <laughs> throughout um, Lumet's films here early on and everything. Uh, I don't know if I'd put it up in the upper tier. Uh, just in comparison, I think I think it's unfair because when you're sort of binging and watching a bunch of films by one director all in a row. And one just really grabs you more than the other. I think it's maybe if you just watch Serpico on its own in like the span of a year or something, sure, it would stand out a little bit more. Yeah, but it's your podcast. You know? I know. I know. <laughs> I, I, maybe I programmed this poorly. No. <laughs> no, but like that—that's the other thing too. As, as I told you, it's like it's so difficult to program a director like Lumet and say, okay, let's try and focus on these, right? Because I haven't seen the pawnbroker. I haven't seen right. 
the um, the two Sean Connery films that he did oh, that right. were supposed to be highly acclaimed, and I want to. But you I'll can't get do to you can't do the whole career. No. I, at first, you and I were focusing on seventies and eighties, throwing in Devil. Like we were really just going to focus, I think, from Dog Day to Verdict. I think at one point, yeah, and then we kind of stretched it out a little, or maybe Q and A. But I mean, we're, we mean, you're even missing some late stuff. I like. I like Night Falls on Manhattan quite a bit. Yeah, that was a surprise um, from that period uh, that I really yep. liked. And I know people like Find Me Guilty. I haven't seen it. It's not bad. <laughs> it's not actually that bad when for what it is. When you think of Vin Diesel yeah. in that role, you just I didn't hate it. Roll it's, your eyes. His funniest non-nanny role. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think his most dialogue. Uh, <laughs> he actually does a few monologues. Um, yeah. No, but like like you said, you can't really take in a whole career uh, as big. Uh, the lasted fifty years. Twelve Angry Men is fifty-seven, and there was TV stuff before that, and before The Devil is two thousand seven. So. Yeah, no, absolutely. All right, let's move on to Dog Day because I think we're yeah, absolutely yeah um, one of the best movies ever made. Absolutely, I'll just I, throw I have that out. Zero there. complaints about Dog Day Afternoon. <laughs> like its gradual pacing is again served a purpose to place you right in that bank at that time. It the, again, this, the sense of immediacy is so strong throughout. Mm. Um, I, I every time I watch this movie, it sort of just invades me, and I kind of go, "Man, why can't a, like a, a sort of a siege film work like this, in uh, which you really have fully you're fully invested in everything that's taking place?" I can tell you, but my theory as to why Dog Day works and those other films don't is because they don't care about two things: they don't care about character or setting; they are way too concerned about narrative about the twists of the siege of who's getting in what door and who's being taken hostage. They focus too much on plot and Lumet understood that a it's the people that matter more. I mean, the actual machinations of what's happening that day get less and less interesting as you start to learn more and more about the people involved, mm-hmm. which is incredibly rare for a siege film, especially modern siege films post M night where everything needs a twist or a new person yeah. who was in on the job or some inside man or some other nonsense. Mm-hmm. None of that means anything to most audience. None you of that means anything. Inside to- man's nonsense. No, no, no. I love inside. Man. Oh, okay. no, I, no, an actual inside man. Like, I mean, oh, like right, a plot right, right, twist right. Okay. where, where, Hey, that guy was actually in on the job the whole time. No, I love Spike Lee's inside man. Okay. No, I meant the plot contrivance of an inside man being right. more important than the people and the location. You feel the heat of Dog Day Afternoon. Yeah. You feel the city. He opens with shots of fire hydrants on the street. And mm-hmm. and I, I was watching it recently. He opens with a number of those shots. And I said to my wife as we were watching it, I said, see what he's doing here? He's setting up the temperature of the day. He's setting up the uh, the setting of what's about to happen. And most modern films, most modern siege films don't fucking bother. Pardon my French. Much, they much, don't bother. Much like uh, Spike Lee does at the beginning of Do the Right Thing. Yeah, yeah. Wally. Yeah. Do the Right Thing is also a masterpiece. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, I mean, I mean, that's kind of an interesting, I mean, that's kind of interesting in the sense that, like, if it's a siege, it's, it's kind of, I mean, it, uh, part of when you're making a film, a siege film, I mean, it's it's kind of like, putting like can you make like say a contemplative noir right or a contemplative drawing room mystery of, of course you can but like uh, of course you can but um i i don't know if like um uh, dog, dog day is really good for is really good for what it is but it is seems that it's in spite of its premise or 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 not even that it's explicitly subverting it you know transcending its premise yeah <laughs> 
Tra- transcending would okay. Transcending would seem to okay. So you, your your impression is that like it takes this kind of limited frame and comments that upon how limiting it is. It or gets that- you in the door with the limited frame. It hooks you in and says, "Hey, now we're going to show you something that you're not expecting to see. Mm-hmm. We're not going to be a traditional bank robbery movie. We're not going to be a western, which most bank robbery movies turn into, mm-hmm. uh, or real the real Bravo model. I see. We're, we're, we're going to be a commentary on certain things and we're going to be a actor's showcase which you also often don't see in the real bravo model which mm-hmm. becomes more about good guys inside bad guys outside or vice versa so it transcends that real bravo setup to become something greater mm-hmm. i would concur with that completely I, I i you know i mean you could lump it into a genre piece or something like rio bravo but um he has a so he takes so much care into small details and setup and payoff and you know characterization and you really genuinely get a sense of the plight that Al Pacino's character is in in that moment through his performance most yeah I mean Lumet gets a ton of credit for it but Pacino's intensity and his plight's a good word for it like there's almost there's no other thing he can do. He cannot possibly not do what he's doing that day. Yeah. He's one of those people who's gotten to the point in their life where there is no turning back. This is what needs to happen. And this is what I'm going to do. And he sells that sort of inner resilient, not resilience is the wrong word, but commitment drive. This is what's going to happen. I think it's Pacino's best performance. I think it's one of the best performances of all time. You might be able to say he was mad as hell and he can't take it anymore. (laughs) Uh, That's a year later. Uh, (laughs) But but there's actually something similar to that. The desperation of that moment in network, which is I cannot not do this. Right. There is no choice being made here it is what is going to happen next in my life Mm -hmm. and that's very rarely conveyed that well on film you 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 see films where you look at people and go they're doing something stupid why are they doing that i wouldn't do that capturing someone doing something stupid like a bank robbery and going he can't do anything else yeah is like is really really hard to do and i think one of the reasons that movie is so good uh, there was um, it, it calls to mind for me like there's a was a great commentary on the Reservoir Dogs DVD where like um, where Tarantino Tarantino comes on on to the commentary track and says about like at the end of the film why a particular character admits something when he could have gotten away right. and he says if you ask that question you may enjoy my movie but um, but you don't understand it right. because there's a point where a per- there's a point where a character does the thing that he doesn't want to do but feels he has to do right and. And like, yeah. and I think the characters of Network and, and Pacino from Dog Day, he's like, it's a, it's something that he feels compelled. I would argue Lamette's good at that his entire career. The compelling action that people feel like they have to take. I mean, certain things Treat William does in Prince, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the the way the verdict plays out, like he, the verdict becomes about a case that he needs to really save his own life. The things that people are compelled to do, if. If you're watching a film and you ask yourself, why is that person doing that? You've already been taken out a step. Mm-hmm. And in Lumet's films, you very rarely do that. And Dog Day, I mean, how many bank robbery movies have you watched and went, that guy's a moron. Like, why would you do that? Yeah. <laughs> like, almost yeah. all of them. It, but you never do that in Dog Day. It always kind of goes back to my first experience as a kid when I first saw Die Hard. And, uh, um, you know, Alan Rookman goes, shoot, shoot the glass. And I was like... When as a kid, I didn't understand why. I was like, "What? Why would he ask him to shoot the glass? It doesn't make any sense. That's stupid." And of course, 
you realize that the reason why he wanted him to shoot the glass is because he saw that Bruce Willis doesn't have any shoes on earlier in the film. Right. <laughs> and if he walks over the glass, he's going to get really fucked up. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that, that sort of ties together um, not only just good storytelling and good filmmaking and making sure that you pay attention to those little details and that camera shot of Bruce Willis's naked feet was there for a reason. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. <laughs> there, there's a super, there's a, there's a contrast between Die Hard and, and Dog Day that I, that I find super interesting because one of the things that I just, I real, I, I'm kind of charmed by in, in Die Hard is how, how Alan Rickman's gang is this like rainbow coalition of people from like, that was clearly done from a dartboard of, of different, different ethnic and other groups just so that no particular group could be singled out. And, oh, yeah. and by contrast, you look at like Dog Day and it's like, and like to, to what you were saying about like transcending its particular genre, like it comes to, it comes to mind. It's like, man, who stuck Nashville in my, uh, um, in my, um, uh, <laughs> In my bank robbery movie, in within that fr- structure, to me, it's like he is illuminating that neighborhood. The yeah. crowd, the crowds, the, the crowd and, scenes are amazing. Yeah, and the, and the yeah. people and the hostages in the bank. Everybody amazing. has their own story. They do, and, and you and within like what what I think effectively two settings, right? Well, three: the bank, yeah. the street, and then the bus at the end. Yeah, like you are illuminating in a whole world. Well, and where Chris Strandon is, that that's right. Oh, true. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is an important setting, but you, that's exactly right. That every we watch bank heist movies, and everyone in the bank, and almost all, but maybe one of the cops, feels like a cog in a plot machine. And you don't feel that in Dog Day. When I'm talking about transcending setup, it's you're right. The people in the bank feel like people who work in a bank, mm-hmm. and the people outside feel like people who just came down the street and saw something. There's a believability of setting in Dog Day that you do not get in genre films, especially bank robbery films. There's a heat. There's a passion. There's a power to what's happening. Immediacy. Immediacy is the word. There's an immediacy to what is happening in every scene in Dog Day that you do not see in in bank robbery films because they're so clearly full of narrative machinations and plot twists and characters who exist purely to be an inside man or a twist or a hostage or a, where their plot description is hostage, bank robber, cop, logline. He feels like everyone in Dog Day is a real person. <laughs> yeah, I empathize with almost everybody. Yeah, exactly. You know, as I empathize with the bank robber, I empathize well, with the cop. That's the other brilliance of Dog Day is that there are no villains. Right. It becomes a piece where there are no villains. Yeah. No, I mean, Charles Durning's great in this. Oh, yeah. Just the I best. mean, everybody, the entire cast and everybody is distinct. Yeah. But at the same time, I was like, I was, I was thinking, you know, as I'm watching this, I, I, I definitely feel. I mean, obviously, you feel that in Die Hard too. But just being trapped, yeah, within a bank, fearing for your life. I mean, there's just a, a visceral sense of that happening. Yeah, you know, like the fire taking place. I mean, every single instance throughout, and then even the claustrophobic setting. Once we get to Lance Hendrickson in the car, all that taking place. And even just how quick it all resolves oh. is just... And the movie feels ugh. like it's... We talked about long, short movies and short, long movies. Dog Day Afternoon feels like it's 15 minutes long. I put yeah, that movie on. I know, right? I've seen it uh, dozens of times. I put it on and it's over in the blink of an eye. Mm-hmm. I can't believe how quickly it's over. Yeah. yeah. I, it seems that it, uh, one of the things I really like about it is how it's not just like... like 
informs on the on all these different care all these different characters and gives them some validity to their like to their to their like their their needs their desires and so on but it also seems to me to like to really capture this kind of societal feeling like the kind of like po- oh. kind of watergate kind of level of like uh, let the anti-authority thing oh, is yeah. very very prevalent on it and oh yeah and the it's sense mid, of things going out of control. It's mid seventies urban living. It's it's a uh, people who need to reach out against authority and take something back, and and who have yeah. been who have been pushed down by authority because of their sexual preference or whatever it may be. No, it's a. I mean, I I think it's a, like I said. I do not throw around the M word easily, and I think it's a masterpiece. Yeah, I throw it around too much, probably. <laughs> I mean, it, in a way, it could it's function. One of my favorite movies. Yeah, it could function. Almost like as a eulogy for the counterculture at the time, oh. and I, uh, I I feel a strong connection towards it, and the fact that I did see it at like a very young and impressionable age too, probably around the same time I saw Die Hard, and just yeah, being too. so taken yeah. with with everything about it in Pacino, whereas with Network, <laughs> Network is an interesting creature. I've always had. I'm going to step back a little bit on network because it's been like three or four years. So Are you mad at telling? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Start yelling into the microphone. No, it's just been a while, and I don't love it. But I'll, I, I'll just I leave know. that out there. I know, and I feel like <laughs> you. You know, when when I know people like Paul Thomas Anderson, my favorite director, thinks it's one of the best top five best movies ever made, or something like that. I start to go well. You know, I start to watch it, hoping it's just going to become the masterpiece that I've often heard. Uh, you know, I mean. I don't want to just sort of lump it into it's like, well, it's the precursor to Glenn Beck and YouTube. And, right. You know, it was, you could just rename this movie as prescient. And, you know, the, the ultimate satire on television and you know, all the things that people have written about and people have mentioned time and time again. Um, but there are just certain elements of it that do come across as cartoonish. I mean, maybe it's just like upon reflection. Maybe at the time. Yeah, I don't think they did then, and that's yeah. the problem with network. Yeah, that's probably it. I'll step back again. Yeah. <laughs> maybe it is a little dated. You know, yeah. maybe just just at, just because of the times and how things have progressed. And I remember, I, I think I heard this actually from from Nick DiGiulio that, and I, I don't I don't know if I ever looked this up to confirm, but it was originally considered a science fiction movie. Like it was, it won. An award as a science fiction movie for its time, which is weird. Like like Orwell, like eighty four, yeah. like maybe okay. that. Yeah, I could. Okay. I'm not sure I believe that, but I, that's probably what that means. Right. I mean, if you I mean, if you look at the well, the subjects it's tackling and what a seventies audience. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like the way the attitudes that news anchors. I mean, this was still the era of Cronkite, right? right? Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. the uh, so the idea of them being these Machiavellian, like, like just uh, who were exploiting people's fears for for ratings was right. was like uh, it was yeah. so contrary. They're like, boy, yeah. what kind of crazy satire is this? Uh, someday people will be like, they looked at Lawnmower Man and Virtuosity as science fiction <laughs> movies. <laughs> well, that's a scary thought. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! <laughs> but I think you're right. I I think that's what it is. It's got that George Orwell Big Brother, and like yeah. you said, it, it's an era where the wizard was finally coming down a little bit. But to a lot of audiences, this was kind of revelatory in that sense. The idea of how much they were being manipulated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, there was. A, I, mean, I think like roughly around that time, and I'm, I'm I may be getting the dates totally wrong. There was a there was a series of like anchors who like who had like. Killed, killed themselves. The idea that I mean, even even back then, though, the idea that 
you'd make just the ultimate sacrifice for it. It's like it was thought up as some sort of absurd Buñuelian farce, not like something that could very clearly come across today. In 1972, in Sarasota, Florida, a woman named Christine Chubbuck went on the 5 o'clock news, pulled out a gun and said, you guys want blood and guts or something along those lines and shot herself on the live local news that night. There are two films coming out about her. One called Christine with Rebecca Hall and Michael C. Hall, and one called oh, Kate wow. and one called Kate Plays Christine, which is a quasi documentary hybrid thing about Caitlin Scheel, who's an actress trying to play the role of Christine Chubbuck. And that sounds fascinating. They're both fascinating. I like the documentary hybrid more, uh, and we can talk more about that another time. But the point is, in Kate Plays Christine, they claim that Chris, the Christine Chubbuck shooting inspired Network. That that's why mm-hmm. network exists and was written that makes sense. Um, because of that shooting. Which don't go on YouTube, dear readers, and try to find it. It's like a holy grail. Trying like they, no one has ever seen the footage since it happened. Supposedly they put it in a vault and it's buried in some Florida newsroom basement somewhere. But you can't actually see it. But it's interesting to me. And Kate plays Christine makes this point that a young lonely, possibly depressed thirty-year-old woman got turned into an old man <laughs> by Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, and what does that say about certain yeah, things? That's a, that's a scary thought in of itself. Well, there there is. Well, I mean, there there is that. But then, I mean, I've never. I mean, I found really when I saw Network that Finch's character is not not treated as like this sort of hero at all. It's right. I think it was a really nice dividing line between like understanding why he's why he's angry and then also thinking that clearly appreciating that he is off the he's around the bend and he's and his yeah. and he's out of and he's out of control yeah, he's suffering from some sort of, sort of schizophrenic breakdown and doing that anything like that on television requires a certain degree of assholishness for lack of a better phrase i mean as several people have pointed out she killed herself on television at a time where she knew children were watching you know what mm-hmm. i mean so so you can't turn those kind of characters into a hero really mm-hmm. uh it, you can try to understand why they're doing what they do, but hero isn't the right word. And I think Chayefsky understood that when making Network. I mean, Network is another one of those movies where there are no real heroes. Am I right? Yeah, uh, no, that's that's true. I mean, you know, William Holden obviously is yeah, cheating. Right. And uh, Dunaway yeah. is uh, Machiavellian, for lack yeah. of a better phrase. Yeah. Uh, Alas, Lumet's not able to humanize Dunaway. <laughs> again, Lumet's to even his powers. Again, there's a woman, there's a woman problem. There's he a tries. woman problem in all of them. Yeah. <laughs> I think he tries in the final moments once William Holden sort of confronts her about her uh, indifference and inhumanity and all that, and sort right. of she's just sitting there alone. Dunaway sort of, makes that work. Yeah, again, it's yeah. been a few years for me. Network to me is a good film. I think it's an important film culturally for the time it came out. It's one of those ones like Serpico that doesn't hold up for me quite well, and I think gets a little lost in its messages. Uh, it gets muddled. And maybe it wouldn't have come off as muddled in 76, but it does now. There's too many diatribes. There's too There's, many monologues. Exactly. There's too much writer speak. There's too much I can hear a screenwriter and not characters in network. Yeah. Me. But it's a good film. Well, again, oh. we're talking about a masterful director. So you, you get to a movie like Serpico or Network and, and we go, oh, well, they're not as good as some of the others. They're still really good. They're still good films. Yeah. I just don't love it like some people like do. Like Ch- Chayefsky sort of reminds me a little bit at least with network and to some extent the hospital like the the Aaron Sorkin uh, of his time where it's like there are moments I'm like yes I totally get I'm totally behind you with that I'm on your side I can agree with that statement but then but you're hearing a writer's voice yeah I'm hearing I'm hearing a writer's voice saying that right and then directly to me almost over and over and over again after a while (laughs) 
Mm, like I, the Ned yeah. Beatty scene in particular, I'm like, I get it. Okay, I know. I, and I know he's confronting a character in that moment. He's not. Sorry. It's not like the, the entire movie is preaching to its audience, but there are moments where it feels like it. Mm, there's like yeah, like the um, to, to me personally, it's not even that Sorkin and um, and 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 Chayefsky or but especially Sorkin is that like the author is is like every every character looks like it's spouting. Like I'm actually a big fan of Malick, and that's clearly every character in a Malick film is is Malick's own voice. <laughs> yeah. David Mamet. I mean, we talked about yeah, Mamet yeah. earlier. Oh, yeah. Mamet's biggest problem is that it's not even a problem because it's so blatant that. But a lot of his best plays, every character sounds exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. they have the same rhythm because they'll sound like Mamet speak. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But I, I don't, I don't particularly mind that in, especially in Mamet's like Glengarry Glenn Ross. If it's, it's that exaggerated, different. yes. If it's that very much clearly an authorial tone i think in something like network or in some of sorkin's work it becomes a problem because he's trying to present different characters of different backgrounds well yeah Uh, yeah for me sorkin's for me sorkin's big offense is that he is that on a lot of cases his sensibility is the sensibility of someone who like thinks uh, 20 minutes late you know when you think of something really clever to say 20 minutes later like sorkin's attitude is like well i'll say that right now like so everyone always has the right thing to say exactly that's exactly it that's exactly what I find annoying on it, and and like Beatty's Beatty's monologue is, I definitely feel that like that 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 he's that he's he's continually hitting that mm-hmm. on the head. But then I think the movie does a really interesting point by having this by having Finch's character who has like not been back down. Just finally, just realize that how far over yeah. his head, how far over his head he is. He sort of recoils in that moment and just like goes, "I've heard it, the voice of God." It, and yeah, that's it. Like, he yeah, has no other retort. Yeah, like, like, just, uh, I mean, and like, I can see a lesser film going on and like, like being on Finch's side uh, all the all the way, mm-hmm. and th- that that this that this shows how much he's out of control, how much he, how much his character is used, and how go- how audiences who believe in him are both you feel for their like for the anger that he's tapping into and yet realize how gullible and, and duped they're being mm-hmm. and how he how he's exploited i think that is really fascinating how network how network uses it yeah the moral gray area is there for sure oh. i just uh i mean i will say this real quickly on a technical level i can see why someone like paul thomas anderson watched this before he you know he screened this for his entire cast and crew of magnolia and at least for like the the first act there's a lot of dolly shots. There's a lot of glideful camera work. There's, uh, it, just, it seemed like a lot more editing, a lot more um, just you know flourishes. Not necessarily like zooms and crazy things going on like Scorsese style, but remember? just there's a lot more energy. I want to say there's a lot more energy to network at least in on the out, on, in the outsets. Uh, but again, I think it gets bogged down with the with the William Holden Faye Dunaway love story angle mm-hmm. um, when mm-hmm. we should just be focused on uh, on Finch. But I, I, I do think it's an important film of its time, but it's one where I grow restless when I rewatch it. <laughs> Whereas Prince of the City now, but I, this is the first time I've ever seen it. I haven't, I've, I just watched it because I've heard so many good things about it, including Nick DiGiulio said it's his favorite Lumet film. Peter, too. Subzinski. Yeah. yeah, and it, it's so up there right now for me. I, uh, I adored it. I, I, like I said, it felt like, it felt like an entire season of The Wire condensed into three hours. You know, that procedural element, the sort of just corruption comes from all sides. Yep. Um, it's, a, it's a sprawling epic, but it feels so self-contained and very um, micro-level at the same time where you're focused on the brilliant Tree Williams on this, on this, in this film. 
Um, but it's it's as much about how we can never sort of quite wash the slate clean of our own past. And I really like that sort of uh, philosophy that it's part of inject. It. I think it's also about how difficult it is to be good in this world. Yeah. And how in any world, but especially a world like this, mm-hmm. where you say to yourself, "I'm going to try to be a better person," and how that is almost impossible in certain situations, uh, especially the one he finds himself in. Um, and I think that's an interesting commentary. That's a theme I think that gets stronger and then is nicely left that you carry away with you when it's over. What I like about Prince of the City this time is how much it builds. How much like yeah. a lot of. Serpico, I get bored around the hour mark, and it never quite gets me back. Prince of the City, every scene, there's there's a sort of rhythm to it. There's a there's, oh, yeah. a, there's a very clear Another rhythm. Another one that starts out really, like there's a good clip, right, to the way it starts. Well, and 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 then there's a rhythm of okay, out and being wired, back in with his handlers, out mm-hmm. and being wired again, and back in with his handlers. There's a structure to it, a almost like a metronomic structure to yeah, Prince of the City like that, that is <laughs> like that's almost. That, that brings you further and further into it. You get into the rhythm of it. You get into the way it's moving and the way it's designed. And then, of course, Treat Williams, who this time I felt like gives one of the best performances of the 80s. Like, that's how far I would go. The performance is so subtle. And I didn't, I hadn't seen it since I was about 15. So, as I said to several people, I hadn't really seen it. Right. When you're 15 and you see that movie, you're not really getting a lot mm-hmm. of the themes or the characters or the beats or why it works. This time, I was blown away by how good he is. The way he plays the overconfidence of the first act, yeah. where he thinks he can be the tough guy and take everyone down and wear a wire into meetings that he shouldn't wear wires into. And then he, re- if, it's, if anything, there's a fall from grace type arc to that film mm-hmm. of someone who thinks they can be a savior of the city who thinks they can be the prince of the city and rise above everyone else and realizes, no, buddy, you are just like everyone else. Yeah. Uh, it's almost cynical yeah, in and that the, sense. And the panic he, that ensues oh, when he's yeah. almost made. Well, the, and, the last act of the film well, when he realizes yeah. it's all fucked is like just hard to watch yeah. even. The stuff with Orbach is amazing. Uh-huh. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. When now, they, when they, when they both know this? one of them is going to screw the other one. <laughs> <laughs> Have you, I'm assuming you've seen this before? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's um, uh, uh, um, tr- it's definitely the finest Treat Williams performance I've seen, but uh, like the last one I've seen with his Critical Bell and Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead, yeah. so <laughs> it might not be kind of a bar. I mean, I, yeah, I kind of, like, it's... To me, it almost com- I compare it now with like like almost like Stallone and Copland in the sense that like you know like Stallone and Copland did really well, but man, imagine if a good actor did it. That would have been a song because because no like, one could have done better than Treat. Because like uh, like when he was when he was doing the meltdown, it 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 was um uh, it was just a little it was a little bit overheated for me. Ooh, like the, okay, like 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 he was doing everything but like uh, like physically vibrating in, in those sequences. But he's sold that that character lives an exaggerated emotional existence. Like the hyperness, yeah. the hyperactivity he has when he runs into the with his handlers and he's so excited because he got the tape and he throws it down in there. In other words, he's play, he's set up to me an over emotional character. Okay, yeah. that's that's yeah, right. Yeah, the, the, my, my my impression was that that yeah, then in scene by scene when. When, when he's when he's asked to be enthu- when he's showing his enthusiasm or showing that he feels like under pressure, right. that in those scenes he he can be effect- he can be effective. For, um, but to me, I don't see how it um, it was it was not a, not at a level of like where uh, of uh, where um, 
a better actor would have made that part of a progression. The like what I really liked about his character is that his it's so multifaceted and there's aspects to it that are that are actually at, at total right angles to just the idea the, the just the thematic idea of someone falling to corruption or or having his loyalties tested. Like to me, it was as an interesting and fascinating a character in terms of his motivations as uh, Russell Crowe's character in The Insider. Insider. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a good like, one. Like like I. I I love how in addition to like the idea that he wants to take down like and be a real prince of the city there's a level of of like wanton like self-destruction to the way he, mm-hmm. he he's like he's like challenging himself and daring himself. Oh, undeniably. Yeah. Undeniably. The way he especially in the first half when he's playing with his mob connections and his buddies and his relatives. I mean, he's asking to be yeah. caught. It's almost self-destructive to mm-hmm. a certain degree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then and then just the like the way that his like the way, the way his loyalty to his partners is contrast with this real level of empathy he has towards the junkies to where he's yeah. where he's um um like in a lot of ways it's a way of him reacting against the vulnerability he feels towards towards their situation. It sort of shows the downfall of being a people pleaser to some extent, <laughs> and 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 I and for me one of my favorite parts of, of of the film is this kind of like moment that echoes the um the great Kurosawa film Ikiru. Uh, I, I was like really charmed that when there's a moment near the end of the movie where his fate is being decided and there's like a room that's well, chocked yeah. to the brim full of prosecutors. Oh right, yeah. and right, right. and and it cross cuts between him and his trial. Yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and and and. and and some of those you haven't seen, but most of them you've seen through the course of this what three hour plus yeah. film, yeah. and and you real and it really is a great look from the outside and the inside as to like what does it mean for this guy? Did he do the right thing? Is he a benefit to the city or or not? And none of those have easy answers. I think that's right. why it's a film that's held up. Is that all of those questions? Did he do something wrong? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, he tried to bring people down, and eventually he succeeded. It's like it's a film. I think is. Not quite gray, but grayer than Serpico. And like I said, in the, in the sense that that's it's the response to Serpico, in that our hero isn't exactly perfect. He's, yeah. He beats up junkies, and he does what needs to be done to... And he lies constantly. He does commit perjury over and over again mm-hmm. to protect his own ass and his partners. And I think that aspect of Prince of the City... I mean, the, the films that have held up over time are the films with gray characters. Yeah, uh, there's more ambivalence yeah. going on in this film. To you know, I think I read too that Lumet sort of wanted to reflect, to some degree, the, the McCarthyism era, and how just like you know people were constantly feeling panicked and thinking that they were going to be shunned. And well, there's also the ostracized. aspect of it was white men in suits in rooms, like yeah. at the end making yeah. decisions yeah, making about those people's big lives. Decisions, right? Yeah. Exactly. Right. Right. And then like it probably was coursing through the level of paranoia that was moving around through society, like the like oh. the parallax view kind of. Well, uh, also, attitude. 1981 in New York was a dangerous, awful place to be. Yeah. So there's yeah. that aspect of it too. A cop's job was not easy no. in 1981 in New York. No, definitely not. I just, uh, yeah, I, and the, the final scene is really heartbreaking. <laughs> like, you know, him him sort of feeling like, you know, getting up there and, you know, about to give a big speech oh, and then being undercut like that is... But the look on his face, I'm not sure he's necessarily undercut. Yeah. There's an, there's an interesting freeze-frame final shot there in which the guy walks out and then there's almost a smile. There's almost like, hmm. yeah, that's he who I am. It. I have owned what I've done. 
uh, because he's a character who never quite owned what he did. Right. So I don't take that final moment as heartbreaking. I think there's a peace moment there. I I think if you, if he had framed it or shot it differently, if we didn't end on a face and a half smile that's held, that's frozen, like that's what, that's the note he wants to leave you out on. That's the note he wants to leave you out on of his head's not down. His head's up. He's watching him leave. He's got a kind of a half smile. This is who I am. And, and, and I think that's kind of one of the themes of the film. Okay. He's come to that point. Yeah. Oh, the that's... one, the one little, eh, eh, like it, it was a little bit of a trip for me that let, let that end because just be not, not in that, 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 that look on his face, which was, which was really, really, really good. But he, that is not a person who would teach anything no. that's because especially the one bit of knowledge that he has acquired to me is the fact of how little he realizes the little, <laughs> what, yeah. how little direction how much aware he is of, of that he had no direction to what the, his actions were you know mm. he was buffeted around from and oh. almost turned completely around that's not someone who at the end of the day would think that he would have anything to teach anyone oh, except- but, he's, but he's a speaker <laughs> he's not a teacher he, he's a uh... He's been brought in as a speaker and probably to tell them like a guest speaker. Like a guest speaker. Yeah. Hey, none of you guys know fuck all about anything. <laughs> like that's kind of the speech he's going to give. Maybe they shot that and I'd like yeah. to see that. No, yeah. I do agree he kind of learns that he's been a product of a system. Yeah. That, that he was not the prince. He was one of the peons of a corrupt system that in which again white men in suits determine your fate. So. Yeah, speaking of a white man in a suit, how about one Paul of the best. Newman? Yes. Paul Newman, man. Whew. And the thing I like about it too is just it, it, you know it's not anti-hospital, not you know, or anti-Catholic or anti-lawyer. It really is just a character study. It's really about a man redeeming himself. I mean, there is you know implicit sort of social commentary, I guess. But I just I, I so focused on you know Paul Newman and just his plight again, and how he's trying to come to terms with his past and how you know he's. He's been corrupted, whether if it's self-inflicted, mostly, um, and how maybe to some degree he's utilizing this case as a way to redeem himself, and whether that's, again, sort of a, a moral or ethical sort of gray area to think about, like, I, I want to just pursue this case. You I know, think he's dead if he doesn't. Yeah. I mean, they, they portray it as he will die of alcoholism or sure, have sure. some sort of other horrible decline if he doesn't find some way to get himself out of it and it's professionally that he has to do it and again we go back to the idea that does Lumet have an auteur theory all these characters have something they need to do the character in Prince of the City Dog Day Afternoon The Verdict Hank and Andy and Before the Devil Knows You're Dead they've reached a point where there is no other option for me I need to do this and this is a case where he realizes I need to do this or he'll run over by a car when he stumbles out of a bar after drinking too much well like when you to your to what your point is on on like how he would be dead otherwise i mean look what he's the the kind of work he's doing is going crashing funerals I mean, right. talk about a person's job being defined by his setting you right. know yeah. well, exactly and newman before he goes into that funeral looks so like like this is the last one of these i'm going to do before i jump off a building like that's <laughs> right, the look yeah. on his face yeah because he knows where he's at uh, Newman's performance in that movie is so subtle and so perfect. And again, I mean, Newman's one of the best that ever lived, but it's right up there in terms of his work, as far as I'm concerned. He should have won the Oscar for it, in my opinion. He's just, he doesn't 
chew the scenery once in the verdict. I know. And the number of actors who would have You'd taken that, especially oh my a God. lawyer role. You're gonna play alcoholic you're gonna role. play an alcoholic lawyer trying to save his life and take down a yeah. take down an asshole set of doctors who screwed people over. There is not one moment of exaggerated performing quote unquote Can you imagine george c scott uh, right, in that role? Exactly. anybody i <laughs> yeah. mean it's such a subtle work it's i've i've seen it a few times and every time i walk away thinking i cannot believe newman didn't win the Oscar for I that know. especially at a point in his career where he hadn't had one yet so it's it's actually a lot of um, yeah, it's a lot of tribute out to to newman to be able to play something that's so effectively counter to his usual persona of right. like the of like the, the the rascal operator who finds things over his head right. um and but it's also a tribute to lumet to like do that amazing courtroom like that last oratory that he says yeah. and and have it not be histrionic at all in any kind of it doesn't yeah. feel like a few good men in any possible way well i think newman being newman plays into how that probably played in 1982 i mean if you think about it like you said he was always the coolest guy in the room i mean he was mm-hmm. one of the he was huge at the time i mean it still is but you know what i mean imagine an, an actor who's always played the smoothest character being taken down, like Clooney playing that role yeah. now or something like that. It had that kind of power mm-hmm. of, oh, hey, this guy who's always the coolest in the room is now an alcoholic who, can, who can't pay his bills and crash his funerals. And people like Clooney have done that recently. Michael played, Clayton. Michael Clayton is a, is a great example. I was just going to yeah. say that of some, of a, at a point in their career where they've played the smooth character for so long yeah. and then they turn it. And use it as, in other words, everyone involved knows when they're making the verdict that that's part of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. They're subverting the persona mm-hmm. of Paul Newman, which is another one of the reasons it's great. Yeah, probably the the only like negative downside is Charlotte Rampling. Women. He's got a woman problem. No, and I noticed it so much watching this again too, because like there are scenes where she's just kind of sitting there so passively. Um, I don't. I don't feel like he's given her as much depth and dimension as the male characters. And oh, she's a villain. She yeah. eventually. Yeah, eventually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but if you, if you think back, she always was. So mm-hmm. think about what she did to be a villain. Mm-hmm. She. So, like I said, if if we're going to get into it, all of Lumet's films have a certain degree of female problems. They have a certain degree yeah. of thin female characters there if you want to say he's a great filmmaker he's a great filmmaker of the white heterosexual or mostly heterosexual male experience not Mm. not minorities and not women and that's worth mentioning and noting as a flaw it's a flaw for mammoth too it's a flaw for a lot of great writers and directors over history um but it's worth especially in today's environment when you go back and look at things like serpico and prince of the city and verdict and go I wish he hadn't done that. I, I wish that yeah. was a little more nuanced and subtle and less, especially the end of her character. I mean, it's just like he sees her across the room. Mm-hmm. And like she doesn't even get a redemption moment. There's I no know. like, like that's the, you're right. That is the problem with the verdict is the rampling character. Um, but everything else that works about it is so overpoweringly great that we forgive those kind of things. We forgive them less as time goes by. I think I forgive. I forgave them more twenty years ago than I do now, which may just be a product of maturity. But uh, it bugged me this time. <laughs> yeah, it, well, it did for me too. Yeah, the um, I mean, Mamet gets a lot of credit for the screenplay, and and definitely on a dialogue on a dialogue level, yeah, it is um, it, it is real. That is really nice. I think his his level of having the uh, his sensibility about how 
like these thing, uh, like dynamics are like these con games that people play on each yep. other. Um, and I think it, I think it knocks verdict down a little bit for me because like it's when um uh the lawyer from the other side has that speech about um uh, ha- has that speech about like how I do pro bono work and that's how I sleep at night and and it's basically to excuse him cheating. Right. And whereas whereas like. But like they all so- do that. The doctors are doing that, too. I think that's a theme. The doctors would say to you, it's okay that this person is in a coma because I saved other people's lives. Mm-hmm. Like, in other words, there's a theme of these people who think because they've done 99 good things that they can go kill somebody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was like, that would, to me, to, but that, but that, like, that's no, you're right. a little there's some moments. The, it's a little uh, on the nose for me to oh, just Mason. go like, ha, well, clearly, I know I'm doing evil and here's right. my clear rationalization right. for why, for why I behave, where I behave the way I do. And you contrast it with like, for a situation like Spotlight where it's where the, where the um, antagonism, it's just matter of fact. Right. It's, it's, um, it's, it's a, not a subtle film. Yeah. Right, it's a Ma'am, it's of- never been subtle. It's yeah. not a subtle film. And, and I agree. I don't think Mammoth's screenplay is the strength of the verdict. I think it's performance and direction, especially the framing, Bert Kowiak's, yeah. or however you pronounce his frame. Uh, yeah. The, I, I, the guy, same guy who shot Prince shot Verdict, and you can kind of tell. Um, they, so it's more, to me, a directorial and acting accomplishment than Mammoth's script. Because mm-hmm. you're right. Mammoth's always been a blunt instrument, and sometimes that bluntness works better than other times. Yeah. And Verdict, it's a little back and forth. Yeah, it's it's also like, I mean, and I don't know how much the cinematographer collaborated, but Verdict is, is a really, really effective in its use of light and shadow. Oh, oh yeah. Like, uh, so much of, like, so much of, like, Newman's existence is uh-huh. put uh, put on there, and, and it does a really interesting contrast with the person in the coma is done in this incredibly stark, like, spare, white kind of yeah. environment, you know? And, 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 it was a re- I think it was a really great job during that speech of uh, the final speech of Newman's to like not just have the slow zoom to have it but but also to start it from such a distance oh, right. it almost right. appears in a way like it almost like breaks the the uh, the the set in that it's like being held, it starts right. 15 feet from behind the back of the, of the, the courthouse the, you know yeah, to yeah. literally show Newman's scale and yep. and, and in the yeah, frame of things point. well again yeah. we're talking about framing influencing the way you feel about a character mm-hmm. it's the arc of the film he's small at first in front of, in, in a big room and by the end he's taking up the frame and he has redeemed himself mm-hmm. yeah um i i want to move forward to running on empty i'll definitely sit back it's been like 20 years so <laughs> it's sort of uh, the unsung hero maybe of the of the lumet f- filmography have you seen it al i uh, unfortunately have not. it is oh my god do i have to model save it for round two <laughs> Maybe you should save it for round two. Well, I just want to briefly say that it, it was it's the most straightforward, sort of humanistic and compassionate story that I've seen from Lumet. I mean, it, it, it's almost like how George Miller has Lorenzo's oil in his filmography. Like, Sidney Lumet has this family-driven drama. I mean, obviously it has the political yeah. context to it, clearly, with you know <clears throat> the family being on the run due to their sort of you know, hippie ways from the past that caused them to uh, bomb a uh, a lab of sorts because it was making Agent Orange, I believe, or something along those lines. And somebody that they didn't think was actually in the lab got killed. So now they're on the run, and they've constantly been on the run. That anytime they be, anytime that they're close to being caught, they sort of adopt uh, a new identity take their kids and move to a completely different town, make them look different, give them new identities. 
Um, so I, again, he's he, in the moment. He just places you right in the middle of like River Phoenix riding his bike. Then you see the cop cars. You don't really know what's going on at first, but River Phoenix obviously knows exactly what's going on, and you follow him. It's mostly his story. It's almost like how Mosquito Coast <laughs> is his story. Mm. Uh, this is mostly from his perspective. I mean, you do get scenes, obviously, with the parents by themselves, and there's a, a, you know, a hippie friend from the past who sort of comes in and disrupts things. But for the most part, I do see this as like a really fascinating sort of coming-of-age political movie with River Phoenix just just giving the one of the best performances of that era and like I just anytime when I think of River Phoenix I just get melancholy because he at the time he was probably my favorite actor mostly due to stand by me and seeing that at like that age when I was the age of all those kids and I mostly like identified with his empathy and everything. So ever since Stand by Me, any movie that he was in, I saw like Dogfight, My Own Private Idaho, any movie, I just like loved him as an actor. I loved his characters. So seeing this for the first time, and like there's moments involving like my favorite James Taylor song, who I was named after. <laughs> there's just like just really beautiful, graceful moments that are not at all sappy and maudlin and just like sent overly sentimental. It's, it's, and it's got, there's a sweet love story between River Phoenix and Martha Plimpton here that just really got to me. I was so moved by this movie at the end. I cannot say enough good things about it. It's one of those sort of unsung heroes of, of, of movies from the 80s, right? It's the 80s, late 80s? Yeah, 88. So I just want people to f- seek out this movie um, if you want to really experience a whole different side to Lumet. Um, yeah. <laughs> it makes me think, makes me really wonder what would have happened if like River had stuck around and been one of the uh, Lancaster Dodds kids in, um, uh, <laughs> to play opposite his brother Joachim in The Master. Yeah. Because it seems to me that his, he is a li- little more tied in on family and uh, a little less off the fly, off the handle than Joachim was. Well, we were talking in the elevator on the way up here, like what, other actors' career trajectories would have changed because they got the parts that River would have gotten if mm. he was still around. Yeah. It's fascinating to think about. I mean, you can do that with a number of actors who passed away too soon. No, River was a once-in-a-lifetime type actor. He was phenomenal in mm-hmm. every single thing he did from very early on. Uh, and I remember, like I said, I haven't seen it in about 20 years, but I remember loving Running on Empty, too. It's a good film. Yeah. Yeah, go, I think you can even go as far back as Explorers when, oh, I, yeah. <laughs> when I first saw River Phoenix and just like went, yeah, this is awesome. I love that guy. Got to wonder what might have happened, though. For all we know, he'd have pulled a Christian Slater and he'd be on USA right now. You never know. That's true. You never know where people end up. Where he's, where, yeah, he's on Mr. Robot essentially playing his pump up the volume character. <laughs> right. <laughs> 20 years later. It, 25. It, it makes me wonder like, if Lumet uh, has ever done something equivalent with such a young actor and to bring that out. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I, I'd sort of have to look. Over the course of the career, there has to be, but I can't think of. Yeah, I know he seems to catch. He seems to focus on people like and how life and society has kind of drawn them, worn them, worn them down. I right. guess you can say Pacino's character in Dog Day Afternoon has a, that to a certain extent. But the youthfulness, like, yeah, um, yeah, it's a good. I mean, there's so many we're not touching in the '50s and '60s that I have to believe there's another great young performance in there that we're just forgetting. Yeah, but, uh, I know that. Uh, I want to say there's a movie called Daniel with Timothy Hutton. Yeah, maybe. Yep. That uh, yep. I haven't seen, I but haven't either. But that's right. Yeah, 
So, I mean, there's just, like I said, so much more to cover. The, Round two. There could be a trilogy at this Speak, point. Speaking of Timothy Hutton, yeah. now we move on to Q&A. Why don't you start off with that one? Two years later, Timothy Hutton's in Q&A with Nick Nolte and Armando Sante, and it's another, like we've suggested perhaps, a trilogy of police corruption from Serpico to Prince of the City to Q&A. Um, it's a little, it's not a little, it's way more blunt than those other two films. It is yeah. good guy, bad guy. Armand DeSante kind of plays both, but it's the young attorney in Tim Hutton versus the corrupt cop in Nick Nolte. And it's, there's no question from the beginning, we see Nick Nolte shoot somebody and then frame them. And so we know he's dirty and we know he's bad. And it's more about Hutton realizing how dirty and bad people are and can be and then going after them. And there's also a sense to me in Q&A watching it recently of a uh, cultural shift from Prince of the City to Q&A. I was talking before we went on air here about how Prince of the City, you'll hear racial epithets thrown around casually. You'll hear not just epithets, but racism. In other words, like this is what our black people do and this is what the way the city works. And then nine years later in Q and a, it almost feels like, like we talked about with the searchers an apology to that, Mm. to a certain extent in that Tim Hutton's character is defined by a racist past and a racist reaction. He had to his girlfriend. He basically, cause I don't think you've seen it Al. There's Mm -hmm. a, there's a moment he was dating a girl played by Jenny Lumet, whose father is black and they were going to get married. And according to her, when he saw his, her father who was black, he the look on his face. She knew they could never get married. So then, oh. in other words, there's like racism embedded in him. Hmm. Um, and so there's a certain, and Nolte's character is unapologetically oh, racist God. and homophobic and vile Everything. in that way. Huh. So, so Hutton's character is, and, and he's trying to get back with her and take down the virulent racist. So there's a certain aspect of times have changed and here's how. Now the end kind of betrays that to me. The end, to, to me, this is a film that can't end gray. If it's going to be a here's how things have changed and here's how we're going to conquer the racism of our past generations and current corruption, you can't, sorry to spoil, you can't have him lose. And he loses, essentially. Mm-hmm. I mean, Nolte goes down. I won't spoil how for Al, but... But in the end, there's a moment of, there's a scene, I don't know if you saw it recently, yeah. there's that whole like, well, you still lost anyway, fucko, sorry. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, it's all going to keep going on. And and you could say it would be too wide-eyed and nice to have, to say that we cured racism with this movie. But I felt like I needed a little bit more of a satisfactory ending to his arc. And I think that's one of the problems with the Yeah, film. I would yeah. agree with that. Um, I mean, I guess like, the, well, there's a scene on the beach where they oh, right. almost touch hands. That mo- yeah, that's the actual end moment. Yeah. But that's not the greater picture of life in New York City and mm-hmm. corruption. And Correct. I guess I needed a bit more of a victory for a character. If, if, the, if we're taking the film as a commentary on, hey, we're moving into the 90s and away from the 80s, which I do to a certain extent, especially after watching Prince so recently. Yeah. If you take it as that, it can't just be like, oh, we're all still fucked. Like, I don't get a whole lot of satisfaction <laughs> from that. And part of the reason I, that doesn't, what you're saying doesn't work for me is because the personal aspects of the story don't work, largely because Jenny Lumet is not good in any Correct. way, shape, or form. And I mean, she's not just mediocre, she is bad. And she, and, and she is one of the things the film hinges on. Mm-hmm. Um, so Hutton's character, I'm pointing at the little menu screen we're looking at here. Mm-hmm. Lumet plays the girl he was going to marry. Mm-hmm. Armand Asante plays a gangster who is now with Lumet. 
Ah. So there's a sort of love triangle aspect to it all. So in other yeah, words, she yeah, needs yeah. she needs to, but she needs to be the most interesting woman in every room <laughs> right, for this to not. work, and she's not. At all. <laughs> uh, like for that, for us to believe that some of the things that Sante's character would do mm-hmm. for her and Hutton's character for that matter, some of the legal corners he would cut and things he would do. We, we need to believe that she is on high on a pedestal. And again, Lumet has a woman problem. There's a, there's just the fact that he can't create nuanced three dimensional, well-rounded female characters. Sad, and but this true is here. a movie that needed it. Now, if yeah. we want to talk about what works, I think Nolte is, Captivating. Oh he's great. Of course, I mean, he's, he's always great. Uh, I think he. I think Asante's really good too. Uh, yeah. Hutton seems a little over his head sometimes. Like he can't quite figure the character out. Mm-hmm. But the bad guys are fun. Uh, and the, and I like the I like the uh, interplay and the banter between uh, Guzman and Dutton. Oh, Luis Guzman is great yeah. in this movie. Yeah, he's it's phenomenal. one of his best performances, and I've always. Loved I know. Him. Yeah, I he's know. great. Even so better than the game show in Magnolia, no, where I'm he's not. laughing That's, at the little kid. <laughs> he's actually got a <laughs> size. You ain't seen trouble. He's actually got a sizable role in this, and and yeah, he's, I was and he's quite at how good. much. Like I just saw, and Charles S. Dutton too. Yeah, uh, as a size. Oh, okay. Role. Yeah, yeah, no, they're they're both great. I found that fascinating. Like they are both. Um, sort of spouting off racial epitaphs towards each other right. in certain instances, but then like you know uh, Hutton is there to sort of break the tension, not necessarily tension because they're friends and they're sort of doing that playfully, I guess. But it's not coincidental that you've got movies like Prince of the City nine years earlier where every cop is white and they're talking about what black kids do, and in this one, Guzman and Dutton are both heroic yeah. protagonists. Right, right, right. That is not, you can't tell me that that's not intentional. I no, mean, but then, then you have the interrogation scene with Armand Right, Sante. which is a good scene. That's a phenomenal yeah. scene where he literally says there will be no racial epitaphs in right. front of my woman. <laughs> right, <laughs> no. right, right, right. And no, they, they address it head on. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And the I, end is ridiculous. I know. <laughs> I mean, he, the, and, the, the best Lumet films don't really end. They kind of just kind of drift away. Like, yeah, they the, don't yeah. have, you don't have major twists, and this movie kind of gets to a certain, like, writes itself into a corner, and then Nolte, who's been the smart character through the entire film, who can travel without really being, who can get in and out of airports easily, Decides it's all going to end in a shootout in a police station. It's hmm. like, hmm. Yeah. The, the, <laughs> he, he is so good. Like in those in the Lumet films that I've seen, like at, at just having things drop solidly. Like, yeah. like, like he does the cinematic equivalent of like the chunk chunk noise at a right. Law and Order episode. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. like, look at, I mean, look at how quick in Dog Day Afternoon. Yeah. when things go down, it's done. It's no. so quick. Like, yep. like, yeah. and Where's like, the, like, um, like the demise of a uh, Faye Dunaway's character in Chinatown. That it goes over that quick. Yep. Uh, the ending of Network is just quick whoa, yep. really really sharp here. yeah but it's an unbelievable moment yeah. it's clearly one of those moments where you can tell a screenwriter wrote themselves into yeah. a corner they're like where do we end this what do we do here mm-hmm. that's what it feels like to me yeah it does feel a little forced in that moment and, and he I just, just blew up a boat like five minutes earlier yeah. and he's going to be dumb enough to try to take him in a police station I, I, the, 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 the one huge negative for me and I'm going to spoil this for Alan is I gotta do it guys you knew this was coming don't double cross. Oh, the song. The ones you love. <laughs> There's a, and, and let's talk wow. about how Lumet barely uses music it's like a and black score. dynamite move. <laughs> yeah, yeah I know it really is. It. It's it's the opening theme song. It's this horrible cheesy '80s theme song, and then it comes back. Like he uses it mid film. No, I think before that even. I right before, right before he blows up the boat. I think there's another time playing. where you hear it. I think oh, really? you hear it twice in yeah, the film. Yeah, yeah, no, I think you're right. Twice yeah. in the actual film, you yeah. hear it. Yeah, it's and it's horrible '80s. It's 
Jeez. So wow. bad. <laughs> Cheesy song. It so takes you uh, out of the movie. Thanks. But but Lumba, I noticed watching the films recently how sparsely he uses music, score, or yeah. other kinds of music. And you, know, I, you notice it in q and I wish sure. this one held up very strongly. It doesn't. I didn't mind. hate it. I, no, I know. I like it. I actually liked it more than I thought I would because I remember not liking it much at all. But I think especially in light of Serpico and Prince looking at it as some sort of commentary on where we were at the time. I actually think it might be more interesting to watch now than it was in 90, at least for me when I was 15, I didn't care yeah. to get it. Hmm. Watching it now in context of film history and city history and Nolte history. And Lumet and I, history. And I want Nolte's mustache when I grow up. Oh, who doesn't? <laughs> um, I'm transfixed by it right one now. Thing I want to run, one thing I'd like to run by you on when we're in your pre- what is your impressions of this uh, film compared with like um, this uh, film by Carl Franklin in the early 90s called One False oh, Move? Man, That's I a better that film, movie. yeah. One I False mean, Move is a great film. Yeah. Okay, like like it's like I think it's doing a similar thing oh, I see what you mean. in terms of yeah. like race and like yeah. oh, definitely with race. Rick, sure. But One False Move is much more subtle in that regard. Uh, yeah. and a One False Move is Structurally, way tighter. Like and one really false isn't move. The corrupt cop element in one false. But I, move. but I see the comparison now that you yeah. mention it. It's one false move is a is more of a noir than this. Yeah. This is uh, just a kind of a city cop thing. Mm-hmm. Not doesn't really fit in the noir category. One false move is great. Listeners know, out there who haven't man. seen one false move should go see that. That's a phenomenal movie. Billy Bob Thornton actually co-wrote it. Um. Yeah. So this brings us to the final film we'll be discussing, at least for this round. And His last movie. One like I, the the score is so prevalent throughout this movie, but I don't care. Carter Burwell, that's why. Because it's Carter Burwell. Yeah. Like I've noticed that like th- th- there's a there's a particular moment where Philip Seymour Hoffman is sort of reflecting on you know statistics and his life while you know he's high on heroin in um, you know like a dealer's apartment. Oh right. And he's just sort of slumped over in a chair, sitting there. Yeah, yeah. And I just kind of go, why does the score have to be here? I would love it if there was no score as he's given this monologue in, the mm-hmm. fil- in a way that only Philip Seymour Hoffman can. Um, but, but Burwell plays themes so well. In that I movie. know. There's it, character it works themes. so well, though. Like when Hawk shows up, it gets a little more flitty and weird. Like it, yeah. Burwell's score is, I think, phenomenal. I don't have a problem with that. Right. I, I, I don't. I really don't. I, I think it's just one of those things where... I become so hyper aware of it but because yeah. the score is so good. Yeah. It doesn't, de- you know, deter or detract from it. Um, but well, I think this is a phenomenal piece of it's, work. It's such a dark fucking movie. I know Pardon it depresses the shit out it of is me. So <laughs> there is no one. No one gets away clean. No one gets away easy. No one's a good person. I mean, even the act of vengeance at the end can't really be forgiven. Like, there's just there's no. It, it's it, he ended his career on a pitch black movie. And, yeah. then, and if we want to go the first hundred, last hundred, there's no, there's there's no Fonda coming in to save anybody. It is all we are fucked. It's the <laughs> antithesis of Twelve Angry Men. Uh, they find uh, everybody guilty. They find everybody because everybody is guilty. Yeah, because everybody is a greedy piece of shit who wants to get as much money as possible to cover up their corruption or their weakness in Hawk's character. Um, or now, here, what do you feel about Marissa Tomei though? Because she. It doesn't come across as a villain to me at all. She doesn't come across as, as much of a character. Again, back just to... Just sort of blends into the background. Well, the first time, three times we see her, she's topless. Well, I yeah. mean, going back into Lumet's female problem, some people have pointed her out as a... I, I mentioned on Twitter that I thought he had a, a female problem, and some people mentioned her, and I think because Marissa is such a good actress and such an underrated actress, they're remembering more to that character than is really there. There's really not a lot there. Okay. Um, I mean, you saw it recently. She's yeah. got one good scene near the end, 
but her early scenes are very much narrative. Like she exists. Yeah. I, I sense that she strives for a better life overall. But I mean, she, they don't. At least I'm happy they don't turn her into a like a Lady Macbeth, which is what yeah. you expect the first time. Right. You expect that she's going to be the one who pressured one or the other into doing mm-hmm. it. But no, it's their own greedy bullshit. Exactly. And and I like that aspect. But again, we're kind of praising lack of character. Yeah. <laughs> like at least lack of contrived character. That's that's true. No, I, I, I'm more on board with that when I think about it. I think it's more just like, I want to give him credit somewhere. Yeah. She's great in everything. And we should do a podcast someday about how underrated she is almost all the time. Yeah, she elevates everything she does. We did one on Laura Dern. You know, she, so ele- she elevates everything she's ever been in. She makes a little bit better, in my yeah. opinion. Um, but and so I think people think, oh, hey, she's great in Before the Devil. Yeah, sure, she's fine, but there's just not much to that character. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a guys' movie, and it's the, the, the two guys, the three guys. I'll throw Finney in too. Are all just phenomenal. They're yeah. they're great. And 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 what it is is it's the kind of movie that could have been all to tie things up in his career. Could have been all plot machination, but Lumet grounds it in character and performance. And setting, mm-hmm. we keep going back to that bar, that cheesy, yeah. shitty ass bar, <laughs> the, the the strip mall that looks so identifiable to anyone who has been anywhere outside of a city. Like the use of location in that movie, the the beater car that he rents, like everything about that movie. It, we talk about Lumet's sense of space and sense of character, and that's all there. Yeah, for the devil, the attention to detail is the there. attention to detail, and Michael Shannon kicking. Oh ass. yeah. That's right. I, I'd forgotten he was in this, and then he shows up like, yes! He calls him Chico, like, over and over again. Isn't it Chico? Or yeah. I think it's Chico. Yeah, he calls him Chico and yeah. stuff. That's great. It's a nice touch. Yeah. I, I, I noticed, like, just the first time um, Phil Seymour Hoffman and Ethan Hawke sit down together at that bar, they're on even playing ground. They're just sort of sitting across from each other. Right. And then... After the shit goes down, Phil Seahoffen is standing right. Right, uh, above him, and he's looking so frail. I mean, Ethan Hawke is looking so frail and I mean, lower. I love that Hoffman performance because he is such a piece of shit. I mean, I just know. the way he talks to his brother. I'm not going to tell you that we're going to rob our parents until you commit to it. Like, If you think about what a loathsome human being that character is, mm-hmm. and but he, doesn't over, but he doesn't overplay it. Like He's not like until the end when he's screaming and crying and shooting people through pillows but before that it's actually you don't realize how awful this person is because he's smooth when he's sitting at that bar telling him about the deal and he looks all clean cut and and he's like you're like okay this guy's not that bad it's philip seymour hoffman i love philip seymour hoffman no he is a loathsome pile of crap uh Uh, yeah who really didn't care if either of his parents got killed that day, in my opinion. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think that's the issue for him. I think the issue for no, him... No, he actually says that, you know, why couldn't it have been his dad? Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Because mom wouldn't have killed him. It's yeah. such an interesting <laughs> contrast to me. The, the films are such an interesting contrast to me to, like, like uh, to like Coen Brothers films because so much of the setting is, like, a lot of their films, yeah. like, in case of, like, like pe- vile people who are, like, putting in a scheme and the scheme goes horribly wrong. Misanthropy, things, arguably. things end up, like... Mm-hmm. Going, and things end up getting like way, way worse the, the more they try to patch things up. But whereas, like, I mean, uh, I think it is a lot of influence of Lumet that, like, it humanizes them. And even even yeah. a horrible character, like, 
Oh, Phil Seymour Hoffman has a recognizable situation where I could totally see in like the Coen Brothers' hands, like they, it's it's clearly the the setting of the movie is clearly like the shoebox where they put these characters right. and then they just shake it all right, around right, and right. just say, look yeah. at these look at these assholes and and look at look at the misery they heap on themselves and you never get this overarching sentiment or I never get that in in before the Neville Devil knows you're dead and. It's and a New York I, movie again, and, too. And, and, yeah, and I also and the time the time shifting is really wonderful. Say mm-hmm. because I think because it gives the same kind of like a noirish notion to time in the yeah. same way Memento does. Yeah, the There's, it jumps back yeah, and the forth in flashes. That's right. It jumps back and forth in time to show that these characters are only living in their moment and they're only thinking like half a step ahead if that. Well, the whole thing doesn't take place over a very long period of time if you think about it. Mm-hmm. The, the, yeah. the parallel trajectories we see through that time shifting. There's also a, for lack of a better comparison, Rashomon type, we're seeing it from this perspective and mm-hmm. this character's viewpoint of why this went down this way. We learn a little bit more about something we'd already seen. Uh, yeah, 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 and we learned about the characters through that structure. Masterson's screenplay is really very, very good, um, and no, it's a it's a great movie. I think it was an underrated movie. I think it didn't get as much attention as it should have. Yeah, I mean, in terms of like taking different characters and, and putting them through a kind of a, a of a schematic, I kind of put that the. Uh, I mean, the structure is a little more innovative, but I put in the level of like of appreciating the character situation in the same way that like Raimi's a simple plan uh, a plan uh, does. Yeah. I think they're more villains than before the devil. I mean I think Yeah. I mean Hoffman kills numerous innocent people and yeah. doesn't care. And Hawk is such a simp. Hawk is such <laughs> yeah. a and, and he plays that character brilliantly, but mm-hmm. the, the kind of dummy who just doesn't, like you said, can't think mm-hmm. beyond the end of his fucking finger right. that hey maybe I shouldn't Give the, like they know they don't actually really quite explain why he sends in a real gun instead of a toy gun. Like the the kind of the way he just decides to not go along with the plan because he's too stupid because he just basically takes what's in front of him. Yeah, uh, I, I, I'm the characters in Simple Plan. I find a little more less misanthropic and a little more redeeming. I guess I see the comparison. Yeah, they're more human. Uh, yeah, they're more human. Right. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, especially Billy Bob Thornton. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the way, but the way like the I mean I like the way how like they had the different perspectives yeah, just yeah, like, yeah. for make a different viewpoint on it and like yeah. and and before the devil makes it literal in the way he jumps back and yeah. just back and re, and re, and replays things. I mean, it's I mean, it's kind of like where Dog Day Afternoon is more extensive. Everything is like there's so many people in the crowd and right. in the bank that, that like that you get everything all at kind of all at once. Like it's interesting how to me how um before the devil does this in through time, not through not right. through setting, you know. Right. We get multiple angles on the same thing. Exactly. And we realize they're all awful. Yeah. I, I, I find it really fascinating that his career began with a sense of optimism, maybe about humanity, maybe even to some extent about the system. Yeah. But here it's the complete opposite of that. Well, we can't I, say too much about that because he didn't retire. Yeah. He might yeah, have, yeah, yeah. He no, might, if, if he had known it was his last film <laughs> and we'd be talking about it on a podcast, he might have changed that a little bit. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I... Yeah, I see what you're getting at. That, that this is a darker, cynical, more misanthropic view of humanity than Twelve Angry Men. That's hard. That's hard to argue with. Yeah, um, <laughs> but it's it's a it's a, it just shows you how vital he was for so long. I mean, that's that's six separate decades, fifty years from the fifties through the OOS that he was. I know. There's essential. So much. Yeah. Are there any films off the top of your head that you've seen that you think we should 
you know, definitely consider for a future episode or bring to the attention of the listeners that they should see sooner than later? Fugitive Kind, which is a Brando film from early that's really good and it's on Criterion. Night Falls on Manhattan is underrated too. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. I know I've seen Failsafe. Failsafe's good. Yeah. Pawnbroker. Mm-hmm. There's another one. I mean, there's a bunch. I just don't have a list in front of me, but those all spring to mind immediately. You know, Child's Play, not to be confused no, with the Chucky movie, no. is, is one of the weaker films. Yes. And no. it's too bad with that cast, yeah. with James Mason and Robert Preston, but yeah. I just thought that, oh, that one was Mason. really disappointing. Am I, am I horribly incorrect in, in uh, thinking that Failsafe is the uh, dealing with the same set of situations that was present in Dr. Strangelove? Uh, yeah. It's similar, yeah. yeah. Failsafe is more is a it was a TV play to begin with, I believe. Correct, and and I think that's Lumet's version was the TV version. Yeah, um, and then it was sort of remade fairly recently with a large cast. Years it was ago. live on TV. Yep, and I think the first one was. Maybe. Oh, was it? Possibly. I think hmm. that's why they did it that way. Hmm. So it's sort of a real timey type, limited set type thing. I see. Um, and yeah, there is a, it's a it's a war commentary, uh, com- miscommunications between whether buttons should be pushed type thing, but it's not satirical as much as it is prophetically warning us against the perils of war type thing, which strange love does too, of course, but with less Peter Sellers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway. I'm, gonna, I'm definitely going to check out his, uh, his checkoff adaptation oh, yeah. to Seagull because Lumet himself considered it to be one of his, uh, one of his better films. So, I mean, we have a lot to cover for the next episode, and I'm sure listeners are screaming, why didn't you talk about family business? Garbo talks. <laughs> yeah. Critical care. Critical care has an interesting Albert Brooks performance. And that's it. That's it. <laughs> Probably. Guilty as sin, his worst film. If you uh, want to really hit the bottom, well, Garbo talks is pretty bad. Uh, Guilty as sin is horrendous. Don Johnson, Rebecca De Mornay, piece of junk. Uh, oh, Don, oh, really? Because isn't didn't oh, uh, Melanie Griffith like was in? Oh, Stranger uh, Among Us. Yeah, you could do that yeah, too. Yeah, and that's in the bottom of the barrel. Too. Yeah, like there's I, a lot. I mean, in the '80s and '90s, he made a movie like every year. So I but, can't believe Larry Cohen wrote Guilty as Sin too. Which is crazy. Guilty as Sin. That's is, why I was going to watch it because we did a Larry Cohen episode. I was like, should I watch this show? Guilty no, as Sin is a train wreck of hmm. garbage. So we got to wrap things up here. Um, what would be your top three Sidney Lumet films? I know this isn't easy. But I'll go first let, just for the hell of okay. it. Since I know this isn't easy. <laughs> right now, in this moment at least, based on the rewatches, and of course this is going to have to change in the future, more than likely because there's still so much to see. But number three for me would be Prince of the City. Number two would be Running on Empty. And number one is Dog Day Afternoon. Like, um, uh, yeah, for me, it's going to be pretty interesting for me to say three, top three, because that will probably consist of 50% of all the Lumet films. <laughs> but, I mean, for, uh, like, for me, I think I would put, like, um, number, number three would be... Um, the um the prince of the city because it's such a great extensive look of of what like Serpa, serpico was uh, uh touching on yeah um uh and then like i would go uh, for the for the um uh, for the for the second film i mean dog day afternoon is such great in a way that it it's it expands on this idea of like the, of of its genre like as as you say the way it it uh, uses a genre to get an audience in, and then uses it to show a whole uh, sketch on a whole society. and And for me, num- for my number one would be would be Network, which I place in with like Strange Love and Idiocracy as like some of the <laughs> most brilliant, accurate satires of all time. Splendid. 
three Prince of the City, which I didn't really appreciate, like I said, until the recent watch. Although I might tie that with Verdict, which is also yeah. really good. Uh, and I wish would make one of our top threes. Yeah, that's number uh, four for me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 12 Angry Men is a classic. It still holds up. It's still taught. It's still important. I look forward to showing it to my kids someday. And then Dog Day, like I said, is a desert island film for me. Yeah. So. 100%. Well, we'll we'll see where we uh, land on the next episode with Lumet. But um, I, I expect... We to, did a lot of the big ones. We did. We did. This is definitely the big ones. I know that's, you know, like I said, the Seagull, the Pawnbroker. There's still others that I know that he himself has gone on record as saying, you know, some of his strongest work and... I'm looking forward to watching this. I can't wait. So it could be as early as next year. Who knows? Because I'm really digging the idea of sequel episodes happening in the future. So thanks, guys, for being on this show. This was fantastic. I really enjoyed talking Lumet with you guys. Um, Yeah, it was great. It was like a real real, uh, education on my part of getting uh, getting, uh, what makes Lumet a special director. Well, Well, Brian is so good at that. And you can go out and see his fingerprints on a movie every other week. If you like want to talk nine, triple right? nine spotlight in terms of procedurals and, yeah. and it's seventies throwbacks, like Lumet is constantly influencing as much as nearly any director, what you see nowadays. And we could have talked more about that, but anything with dirty cops, anything that uses New York well and effectively, I think a Lumet. Yeah. Like he's the, for me, he's the consummate New York director, even uh, to go back a step, even before the devil at the end, when he's, when the, when Finney's trying to leave and the, and the street's too narrow and the cop cars come down, Never that only car. happens Never in New York. Mm-hmm. Like there's a, he never forgets where his films are set and that they're, yeah. they're always a part of what he's doing. And you see that kind of use of a city. I think of Lumet yeah, you see that Woody Allen, Scorsese, yeah, Allen of course is a New York director. Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. So, Brian, where can we read more of your work? Where can we follow you? All that good stuff. RogerEbert.com. I'm regular. I do a lot of TV coverage there and a film review or two every week, and I'm the managing editor. And at Vulture.com, you can read some of my TV recaps and interviews and features. And if you're really interested, PlayStation.About.com. I do video game reviews over there. Ooh, fun stuff. Yeah. And Al, you... um you still have that blog going, correct? Uh, yeah, that's right. Like I have a like I have a website where I put up some reviews and some of my um, uh, impressions on uh, on film. Like most recently, um, uh, I put a post upon why uh, David Lee Roth points out that Vertigo is overrated. Um, you can find it at um, uh, uh, cinemal two zero zero one dot wordpress dot com. Hmm. And Patrick and Quentin Tarantino would agree with David Lee Roth. They're all in good company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> they would probably make atrocious company for each other, but he does have a point. Yeah. Well, speaking of Vertigo, guess where the next director is? Oh, who's doing Al- Alfred? Um, Wait, you haven't done Alfred- Hitchcock yet? How is that possible? Oh, How many stop. of these have you done? How have I done four and you haven't done Hitchcock yet? Isn't Hitchcock like number one or two? Doesn't it go like Kurosawa, really Hitchcock? by the big names early oh, on. Oh, I see. We still haven't done Scorsese. Okay. <laughs> Which will be ch- well, that's going to change. Uh, yeah. Year. All right. But um, yeah. I'm, so who's doing Hitchcock? I'm doing Hitchcock with a friend of mine who uh, you know she she just runs a blog and she's you know written here and there. But she's someone that uh, I've talked with on several occasions. Her name is Kate Blair. How do you even begin to pick which ones you're going to do? You got to do different eras. You got to do trying. some of the early. Yeah, I, I won't advise. You can, you. Go, you can easily go an hour a movie with Hitchcock. Well, well yeah. not to, but not, you could. Yeah, or at least an hour a decade. Like my mm. point is there's so much 
variety in what his career was. Mm-hmm. Like you got to do some of the stuff before he came to the states. You, I mean, you have to do We're certain doing periods. Steps first, yeah. You got to do certain periods. I think to really, if you're going to try to do a comprehensive, or just stick to a period, like you could do. Yeah, Lady Vanishes. Gaslight, Rebecca, 39 Steps. You could do yeah, eras. We'll see. We'll see. Um, I mean, we much like how uh, I sent a list with Lumet, I sent 10 titles, and yeah. we'll see. All right. <laughs> I look forward to it. Thanks, man. And thanks again for being on the show. Everybody visit directorsclubpodcast.com. Send us an email at directorsclub... Or, yeah, send us an email to directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, po- apologies for I just had I've just had a cold. <laughs> I've had a head cold. I've been fighting and a sore throat, so maybe I haven't been on my A game today and been a little stuffy. But uh, nevertheless, you can follow me at uh, Instant Gym over at Letterbox and at Twitter. Um, but yeah, stay tuned for in about two weeks the Alfred Hitchcock episode with my friend Kate. It's going to be a blast. Thanks everyone for listening, and thanks Brian and Al for being on the show. Uh, thanks for having me. All right, have a good night. <laughs>